GoldenEye is America's number one movie with a bullet. Name's Bond. James Bond. And critics are calling it the best action-adventure movie of the decade. Only Bond can deliver thrills this big. On a scale of one to four, GoldenEye gets seven stars. Bond. Only Bond. Pierce Brosnan is the best Bond since Sean Connery. And GoldenEye is the best Bond film ever. Trust me. GoldenEye, rated PG-13, now playing. Welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, this week, uh, James Bond's been trying to get into online poker because all the casinos are closed. So I'm your feeling host, James Page from MI6. And this week, we are doing a watch along with David, Calvin, Lisa, Ben, and Bill. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? David Lee here. Um, if you've listened to this before, you probably know me because I run James Bond I'm Calvin Dyson, and I run the Calvin Dyson YouTube channel, where I post video reviews of Bond movies, books, games, and um, almost anything you can think of if it's got Bond in it. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond, and editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond, and I am drinking a delicious apple pie cocktail. Mm. Mm-hmm. What's your recipe, Lisa? I can I can post it. I found it All online, right. and it's so good. Is it me or Bill? It's mm-hmm. you. It's you, Ben. Okay. Hello. Um, I'm Ben Williams. Uh, I write for MI6 Confidential and MI6HQ.com. And this week, I will be mostly interrupting Lisa as she tries to say things. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm uh, Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command, and I just took an insulin shot just hearing about that apple pie cocktail to get my blood sugar <laughs> under control. Just the sound of it sounds deadly, but there you go. All right, so it's been a contentious week online, hasn't it, everyone? Um, after uh, Goldfinger Gate. So, for those of you not on Twitter, um, Bill nominated Goldfinger, David nominated Thunderbolt. It seems to have split the Connery vote um, two to one. Um, yeah, my bad. And that has left <laughs> that has left Calvin's Goldeneye versus Mark's A View to a Kill. And Mark, with his large social media following, really made a play for A View to a Kill, but Goldeneye pipped it with 32.8% of the vote. So, yet again, Connery being beaten by one of his successors. So we'll see at the end of this recording where we go next. But um, So this week is Calvin's Choice, and you know the rules now, Calvin. Uh, you get to be Leo the Lion for the day. I've been practicing. Can't oh, wait. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if everybody's got their copy of Goldeneye lined up, mm-hmm. we're yep. going to yep. do it in three, two, one, play. <laughs> 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 it sounds like a puppy dog. <laughs> I was doing that in the bathroom mirror this morning, just like psyching myself up for it. Like, uh, like Pierce says, um, you know, if you practice saying Bond, James Bond in the mirror, you were practicing your MGM raw. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, if you but, if you follow Pierce's mythology, at some point you you won't remember which bits Calvin and which bits the lion. Yeah, because of course um, we should say actually up front, um, a lot of people have probably already watched this recently with the Pierce Brosnan watch along that he did. Uh, yeah. not too long Ours ago. Ours will be better. Though. I, I yeah. like to think so. <laughs> I, I think so. I don't know if if everybody's got their printed out questions, they're going to sit and read quietly. <laughs> themselves for the next two hours the way that Sorry, he magically it. opens that door there is amazing yeah. i yeah. really like this as an opening pre-credit sequence i know some people give it flack but i love the idea that we don't actually get to see his face necessarily this is the first with pierce brosnan coming in and we see him in action we see him doing this this stunt and we don't actually get to see his face until he's you know upside down in the toilet uh, well, bathroom it, scene yeah well, you imagine the sell, selling the agent so you're going to play james bond what's my first scene upside down in a toilet oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also continuing the tradition that began with dr no of where we don't see the face of bond yes. initially so I like it also that, helps though. The, it I, I also helps that. the second unit, doesn't it? Because the second unit's like, yeah. oh, great, we've got a new bond. That's awesome. That means that for the first two minutes, we can just use doubles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is such a fantastic stunt, though. I mean, yeah. I know it constantly wins like awards for its for how brilliant it is, but it genuinely is a fantastic way. Well, and, to and the stuntman barely gets the gun out of his holster before he, he's out of camera range, which is impressive because you wouldn't want to have to do that second time no but it's and I think so it opens, up, it opens up the question of how brosnan's bond is going to be defined so connery's bond we see him um from silhouettes we see him playing cards we see him utilizing say luck and skill reading his opponents um and that sort of contributes to his sort of character arc and here we're seeing Brosnan, who is more of an action-oriented Bond, and that's the trend of films going on. And so we see him in a different type of action. So it's not the casino. We see him on a mission. So I think that it sets us up for um, Brosnan's Bond to just be a little bit more physically engaged than, say, some of his predecessors and and possibly uh, Sean Connery. Yeah, I, I think GoldenEye yeah, is the a, first film. That's a newspaper. That's a news. I think the guy was reading the Russian edition of the Daily Mail there. But, yeah, uh, with the I was going to say that's for the kids watching for the kids watching home. That's a newspaper. Just adding to what Lisa was saying. Stepping into that line. Just just adding to what next Lisa week is the fortieth anniversary of my new first newspaper job. Oh, well, go ahead, David. No, I, I, it's just what Lisa was saying about the. Um, Brosnan's Bond being a, a very action-orientated Bond, that um, it, it's really the first of what I call the uh, Bond as a commando rather than the secret agent. He, he's, you know, it, it's he, he carries um, uh, he carries submachine guns around much more from this point on. He, he's he's mm-hmm. running around much more often, and there's there's mm. very little stealth to what he does. Yeah. One of my Bond friends referred to this as machine gun Bond specifically. Uh, yeah. Not with Goldeneye, but maybe with Tomorrow Never Dies. That's the first time I heard that as a label. They tried to put Sean Bean's face half in shadow quite a lot in this uh, pre title sequence to kind of foreshadow 
what what will happen to him later on, which is quite interesting. Just foreshadowing with shadows. Foreshadowing with shadows. <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> but also, I say this all the time, Sean Bean's a living spoiler. He pretty much dies in everything that you see him in. And so it's not a question of, like, will he die? It's a question oh. of when he will die. And I think not, that this not, film plays yeah. on that. No, I don't think it was a such of a thing at the time. Mm. Um, it's become a thing, yeah. Now, it's become yeah. a thing, yeah. So now, if if audiences are new to this film, they're obviously expecting him to die early, and they and you know, so maybe it does work in that sense because people think he is dead when he's not. Mm-hmm. So. But he, his name is second in the credits, which is a bit of a giveaway <laughs> that he's going to be coming back. <laughs> you might be coming yeah, back. It, it, it should it should have been and with Sean Bean as double O, right? Mm. Uh, the, the the end of the poster that would have worked better. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is an interesting reversal shot. That's actually yeah. the same door that they came through themselves, but redressed because they didn't have yeah. a, a full set. So it's quite an interesting thing. I've always thought that they they did that really cleverly. Mm. Well, uh, when this first came out, I actually had the chance to review it for my newspaper, and um, and one and so I actually went to the theater because it was a preview showing. Uh, it was like two or three nights before the actual opening, and it was very odd actually bringing a little notebook with me and then trying to write notes in the dark. But uh, mm. one of the first things that struck me was you know the camera moves a lot more with uh, Martin Campbell than it had mm-hmm. with John Glenn. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in this opening sequence, there's there's a fair amount of it. It's not what I would call shaky cam at all, but mm. the camera is definitely like moving around and... Um, oh, I was thinking about it earlier on today. I think that the difference in filmmaking between License to Kill and this mm-hmm. is probably bigger than the difference in filmmaking between Doctor No and License to Kill. It's like right. a huge leap in just six years. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very polished. It's it's a proper blockbuster film. Um, mm. It looks it looks fantastic. And Pierce is ripe for this as well. I think you know uh, he really he really fills the shoes very well. And mm. I think it's I know a lot of people say that um, you know it'd be good to have Tim back for this, but I actually think it's, it starts a new era. And I think he's right for right for the part for this. Mm. And I um, know that. Oh, sorry. Oh, just interrupt me, Lisa, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. I thought you were done. I was just going to say that um, I know that we're watching it on our own on on mute so that we can talk to each other. But one, I would say, criticism of this film has to do with the soundtrack. And I just wanted to raise it now that it doesn't really have a typical James Bond, say, proper soundtrack. And I think Mm. maybe some people would raise this film in its estimation if, say, David Arnold was was providing us with a soundtrack and that the music at the beginning reminds us a lot more of the video game than it does of the actual movie. I hear it and I think of the video game and playing it in that experience versus um, watching it. And I just think a little bit more of like a typical Bond soundtrack would elevate this film and and in people's estimation because I do believe it's more action oriented. You've got more of a mobile camera. It's updated, and I just want the music to encourage me to feel more Bondish things. You know mm. what I mean? Like it signals that he's doing something heroic. He's amazing. He's great, and we get some of that a little bit later on in in the film, but just not enough in in the beginning of the film for me. I love this escape. It's so good. I mean, mm. I remember seeing this in the theater and just thinking, oh, God, how's he going to get out of that? And that just, it's such a bonding moment for him to, to, to do that. Um, mm. 
Although we get straight into gunning down hordes of people now, uh, which is, mm. you know, not what we haven't seen before, as, as Bill and uh, David were saying. Okay. Now, here's one thing. Um, you know, uh, the general shot uh, 006, which we learn right. later is fake, but he right. then shot one of his own men. Was that real or was that a fake yeah. too? Um, so he had a, a blank in the chamber is the yeah the, the explanation, I think. But, 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 boy, but boy, the general better remember which one's the blank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you also have to, have to question, did they want Bond to escape or not? Because... Right. Why didn't, you know, if Alec is in on it, why don't they just kill him there and then no one's going to know that it was Alec. They could, you'd just say, oh, mm-hmm. both of them died. So if they want Bond to get away to report like, oh, 006 was killed, why are they chasing him now? <laughs> right. Off the edge that's, of the cliff. That's yeah. a very, very good point, Calvin, and unfortunately destroys the entire pre-title sequence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I still love it. I, did, I know this film well enough that I yeah, yeah I spot these things. But um, yeah, I it is. I can't believe how many times I've seen this, and I've never, they, that's never occurred to me before. But. <laughs> they, they did make an attempt to have a stuntman actually catch the plane, and I guess it yeah. couldn't. It, it was the insurance. The insurance cost was too high. Yeah. Um, wow! And then, and then Red Bull later did it for real. Yep. Mm. Um, I was going to say this is something to... that can be done for real. A lot of people have said on forums and the like that this is an impossible stunt, but it isn't an well, impossible stunt. It, it's an impossible stunt when the plane is about to crash into a ravine. Yeah. It's not impossible when it's done at like ten thousand feet or whenever they mm. did it. Yeah, but you can. Um, you can fall faster than people because basically people were what's the air resistance into the into the equation. But I love this. I think this is a is such a a nicely rounded pre-title sequence and such a great way to introduce a new bond. Um, mm. And then we're going to go right into these these uh, these fabulous uh, credits as well, right? And I, Which I, I, includes the final Albert R. Broccoli presents credit. Yeah, this is his last and film. Because he died CG. the following year, CGI bullet director camera, you know. <laughs> yeah. But this this is also kind of um, you know one of the criticisms that kind of gets leveled at uh, GoldenEye is that it's a it's a bit of a pastiche of all of the you know the, the bonds that we've seen before. But I really think it, um, it it becomes its own thing by taking all of these these kind of familiar bond elements and putting them together. They they kind of create their own kind of bond feel and mm. I, I think these uh, these credits are fantastic and they also do reflect uh, what's happening politically at the time and, and bond's relevancy um and so i think you know it, um it, and it's a more polished credit sequence and so we were talking about the last um on license to kill how binder kind of hadn't really kind of encapsulated the bond feel whereas this really is very bondian this hmm. movie featured prominently in the second and to date final uh, official james bond convention which was in new york and they one of the one of the events was showing this title sequence they showed that very last shot of the pre-titles with the plane flying off and then they you know everybody got to watch the titles and um this, of course was the first one done by uh, daniel kleinman um well, uh, yeah, he had done, passed away he, he had done the license to kill music video right for this so. in terms of a main title yeah uh, done by him and of course it's also the last uh 
uh, last Bond uh, work by um, Derek Meddings, who passed away by the time the movie came out in the fall of 95. This is uh, such a great uh, piece of work by Meddings as well, the um, Mm. Seven Higher. And, um, you know, I I think a lot of things were changing towards kind of computer-generated stuff. Uh, And and this is the first Bond film to have CGI. Um, But... But the model work in it is, is really fantastic. And it's nice to sort of see something that actually does kind of lean into the models a lot and, and do so so effectively. Yeah, not apologetic. I also think either. that it, it, I think that it also corresponds with the shift even in the promotional art. So when you look at some of the posters, you see a bit of a shift towards more, I have them on my wall. I have like a, a collection and it's, it's more towards like the fire aesthetic um, it's, it's more image oriented. It's more digital rather than having more of say a, a drawing, uh, type of, of, mm-hmm. of look. And so you can see just sort of a broader shift and updating from the title, uh, sequences that blends into the posters that were promoting the well, film. It's, it's, lit- it's literally the, um, it's the crossover of Photoshop at this point, 95, where mm-hmm. you could do these mm-hmm. things digitally, whereas license to kill was literally cutting, cutting out prints, and sticking them and on. They also, they also had a lot of issues doing License to Kill's artwork because of the title changes and the like. So, yeah. um, but we're here into a very typical kind of Bondian situation almost immediately, which is great. Um, Pierce has aged very well in 10 years. Well, um, also, in the up, coming up, uh, the two cars actually did have contact uh, right here. <laughs> mm. um, because it's on, it's mentioned on the commentary track. I think it was Michael G. Wilson mentioned it. Uh, I talk think about that. Yeah, those two cars really did have contact, and they had to like get them fixed before shooting resumed the next day. I thought I, think, I was just like hearing that music in my no. in my brain, then like subconsciously. No, what no, you I, I, I know I had the same thing. I was like, am I imagining that? Uh, uh, so I'm just going to keep playing it to completely. Ruin the sequence. So. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Yeah, no, it, it is very poor. By the way, real quick, um, in the uh, toward the end of the titles, we we got to see the unwieldy writing uh, credit, which credits the script to Jeffrey Kane and Bruce Fairstein with a story by Michael France. Mm-hmm. And in addition to those three, there was another guy who worked on it named Kevin Wade. And I don't know if that's the comprehensive list or not, but um, uh, I don't know if anybody... I'll, I don't know if I'll anybody find out re- in the next few weeks because we're I, talking to Martin Campbell about it. So we'll, we okay. will find out the truth. Well, um, mm. I don't know if anybody remembers Prodigy, but this was, it wasn't the internet. It was like a closed thing, closed system you you know, it was dial up and there were message boards and so forth. And I found a bond one. And so I struck up a conversation with some guy who claimed to be with MGM and he was like talking up Bruce Fairstein. Oh yeah. Essentially saying, Oh yeah, he saved the script, you know, cause he came in, he came in last and he did like the last polish on it. And like supposedly after he got done, everybody was a lot more enthusiastic about the script than they had been before he came aboard. And um, so anyway, um, he, of course, then got the gig to be the first writer on the next film. And um, it was like the first it was my first experience actually hearing that kind of gossip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because up till then, you know, it was like you followed this stuff from afar 
And sometimes you heard stuff, but a lot of times you didn't, or it would be years later before you heard what the real story was. Well, David, we've talked about this before, right? This is pre kind of web stuff, but alt dot, the news groups were a thing. Yeah. This is, um, yeah, the news groups were a thing. And, and so alt dot fan dot James dash bond was where a lot of this stuff was going on. By the time tomorrow never dies came around, that's when like websites started popping up in 97. So this is like the last bond film produced without the World Wide web really being a thing. Right, so, because um, Prodigy wasn't World Wide Web. It was this. It was kind of. It was a closed system, in effect. Yeah, yeah, and, that's right. Yeah. I remember. But still, so, it, it yeah. had aspects of what would be on the World Wide Web. Yeah, it's quite interesting that later on in the movie that they mention um, the internet. Um, you know, when uh, Natalia is uh, getting the computers from the, the Russian guy, um, and in the subsequent film when um, you know you have the uh, Elliot Carver talking about. You know, his, his media, being a media baron and wanting newspapers and books and TV and all the rest, he just completely doesn't mention the internet. Yeah, well, um, one, of, one of the things about so um, the internet, I, I can actually kind of um, um, place my when I was online by Goldeneye because I remember when, when I watched it and all the internet stuff and I, I, it just made me groan. Oh, also, now originally, um, they were supposed to have the new Aston Martin model, whatever that was. Uh, It had been promoted at the end of the first official James Bond convention in Los Angeles in the fall of 94. But between that event, which was roughly around Halloween and the time uh, production started in the film, the studio decided, well, we actually need an alliance with a car maker who can help us promote the film. So no, no new Aston Martins. So they bring back the DB5 instead, and we get the BMW, which is hardly in the film. But BMW mm-hmm. did promote the hell out of the movie, and uh, um, I mean, it, 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 the move accomplished what the studio wanted. Uh, there were probably, I suspect, there were probably some uh, uh, bad feelings well, on the Eon end, but uh, I think that probably set the seed for the car being so prominent in the next film. Yeah. In, in its use in the film, and then of course, you know, it wasn't really that bondish a car, was it? No, but. no. And in Fairstein's first draft for the next film, that's I mentioned this just recently. His his first draft script says the car, and you know, he he doesn't even hmm. attempt to, <laughs> to you know say which one it is. It's because he knows it's a decision out of his hands. Love that. That's brilliant. This is another one of those sequences where I still to this day, swear that most audiences don't know what's going on with Baccarat. No. <laughs> well, I think the music here, uh, touched on the music briefly earlier, but this is a, a perfect example of how the score in this film does not work. If you're listening to the music over this scene, it's it's actually quite a romantic melody. It's very soft. It's uh, Comparing this to something like Casino Royale, where even if you don't understand poker, you do kind of get the sense from the ominous music and whatnot that it is a tense moment and who is winning, who is not. And this should be their dialogue together. Bond and Xenia's is quite sharp and cut and they're sort of barbing with each other. Um, but yeah. the music plays it like it's a romantic scene, even though I don't think it's written in such a way. 
No, um, not at all. <laughs> I nah. mean, if, if anything, they're essentially probing each other. It's more it's more akin to the scene. Oh, in the spy love me when Bond and Anya are at the uh, at that club and they're each showing off how much they know about the other. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's. I mean, this scene is very similar to that. There, there's some verbal jousting going on, and uh, it's yes, yeah. it's definitely not a romantic scene in any way, shape, so, or form. So the ad is. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting how prominent the cigar is in her hand. Mm -hmm. And typically we associate smoking with Bond, not in this film. It's a filthy habit. You're seeing sort of the shift. But I think Xenia Anatop has like an interesting combination of like masculine and feminine qualities. She definitely has, you know, she smokes the cigar. She gets sort of sexual pleasure out of pain. But at the same time, I just kept noticing the red lipstick, the the red nail polish, which is sort of synonymous in film and culture with being sexual and seductive. And I think that she's an interesting blend of characteristics. Although I do challenge this notion that dangerous women have to be hypersexualized, like Mayday in A View to a Kill. Um, I've always sort of wondered why we have to take it to that extreme uh, with, with women in the films. You really don't have men as being sadists in Bond films to that, to that degree as hench people. So, um, but I do find her representation quite interesting and, 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 and definitely you have sort of the good girl, bad girl sort of dynamic taking place in, in mm. this film. Yeah, and the, the casting of Frankie Jensen was just like perfect, right? Spot on, mm. spot on, and and like like a football referee, the best ones you don't notice. Like casting that goes right, right, you don't you don't really pick it up. But this could have gone badly wrong because the first person offered the role was a German singer and actress. Um, I think you pronounce her name's Uti Lemper, and I looked her up online. Mm. I was like, oh no, that would not have worked. And then mm. um, she passed she passed on it. It wasn't like you know. She, they, she got off it. She turned it down. And then Martin Campbell saw Famke Jensen in um, Lord of Illusions and, and cast her from there. Mm. So. Also, also oh, Bond actually plays a little bit of detective. I mean, he had that you know somewhat high-tech camera, but it wasn't that high-tech. Um, maybe maybe it was by 95 standards, but, um, you know, and, and he's actually – Oh, well, that's definitely not latest tech. Um, <laughs> the, that uh, printing an of FM the radio photos. and a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I will say this. What I will like, what I really like about Martin Campbell is he knows how to, I mean, and Calvin will back me up on this. Uh, he's telling the story. He is, he's telling the story through, um, through shots, like shot, shot reaction shots. So we see mm. Bond's, we see Bond's face, we see the picture of the, uh, of the yacht, and then we cut back and then we cut closer to it. I'm glad that we have the sound down for this scene because this always <laughs> uh, kills, like, you know, if I'm watching this at home and, um, you know, my, like, partner or, um, you know, whatever is in the background, just it's, it's pornographic in, its, uh, <laughs> in how loud it suddenly is. Um, mm. Especially and when you compare it to other Bond films, like I think it's the most overtly sexual scene in any Bond film up to this point, maybe even ever. Uh, yeah, more so than Dino the Bear too. But apparently, Famke wanted to do it naked, but they wouldn't let her for the census, so she had to wear a corset. Huh. And that's how a Canadian dies in a Bond film. Well, I was going to say there are worse. Ones that to good. Come. <laughs> <laughs> there 
are some confusing beats in this, like that whole thing with some hand coming in and picking out yeah, the ID card. Yeah. I've spoken to some people who have thought that that was Bond doing that. Obviously it isn't, but then there is some kind of double for this uh, yeah. Russian admiral because we sort of see him in three-quarter uh, view sort of behind his head it's in a little bit. Be, it's supposed to be uh, Gottfried John, isn't it? It's supposed to be yeah. Um, oh, yeah. General yeah. Ormov. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. I thought they had a double for that Canadian guy because we see him no. a little bit later on, and it's the same actor. I'm assuming that you know we're supposed to just think it's a double or something, but uh, yeah, I no, did the they fly all the way to Servania from here? Is that the idea? I was assuming they just made a pit stop to pick on up a all tank of, on a single tank of gas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Um, yeah, the, the effective range of that helicopter is is not from uh, from France to uh, Siberia. Right. Um, yeah, look, someone someone passes with that ID card. Someone yeah. either Orumov is like has a fake beard and wig <laughs> on and is affecting his best Canadian accent. There we go. That's the shot of the guy from like three quarters. That's the same actor, but um, okay. So yeah. we're supposed to be Orumov in disguise, I guess. Well, that's what I—that's what I've always assumed. Um, but it's a good point, Calvin. They could have stopped off at any. I hate this line from this guy. <laughs> it is it's a just, bit of a just this this chunk of the story. I do find quite um, interesting because you could have just gone straight from the pre. From, from the title sequence into the whole Servania thing with Natalia and Bond is at MI6 and all this kind of stuff. This whole sort of chunk of investigation, yes, he witnesses the helicopter being stolen, so I guess he can follow up the leads. But really, it's all just kind of happenstance. Like, he just bumps into Xenia on a top. Like, if she'd have not been um, right. such a fan of drag racing and challenging random uh, classic cars to duels on a windy road, presumably Bond would not have gotten involved at this point of the story, but he would but still have to... gone on to be involved later on in the yeah, uh, scene where xenia was killing that guy you know that wasn't their shadow they had to have oh. another couple of actors mm. do the stuff so there would be a shadow so that's <laughs> that's how um, complicated that sh that sequence was to film so, so what calvin was here's saying the, here's the stunt team yeah stunt team, my stunt team by and their cameos <laughs> yeah um no i was just going to say that um you know in, in a couple of Planning short uh, uh, novels and short stories. That is exactly how Bond gets involved. He mm, true races. Mm. He, you know, he he meets a, a woman on the road with a fast car. Um, mm. We we see that in uh, I think Seiko uh, and I think. Um, well, in Thunderball, he stumbles upon the conspiracy just because he's has to go to Shrublands. Exactly. I mean, I still um, I still don't think it's the most elegant storytelling. <laughs> um, he, no, uh, I, I think, think it's. it's a, I think you're right. It isn't. It's inelegant, but I think it does tie in with, with what Fleming's kind of narratives were. So it is, in a sense, quite Fleming-esque rather than mm. and Bondian, rather than being cohesive. True. Yeah. Um, by the way, did uh, I had to step away for a minute? Did we talk about how Xenia might be a kind oh. of homage to uh, um, Luci? Yeah. yeah. No, we oh, I thought we, we were going to go for Fatima. Fatima uh, blush, is it? <laughs> blush. Yeah, never again. Well. Hey, it's uh, the dogs. <laughs> yeah, because Luciana Paluzzi had actually done that role, that type of role, not once, but twice. She did it once for Thunderball and once before that in something else. So, um, she, she, Look at that you know, she made that miniature people. Impression. That, is, that is some seriously good miniature work. Mm. Um, you know, to, to put the dogs into that scene. 
um, and create that sense of scale and space. And again, Martin Campbell just is a, it's my mind, a lot of people say work when life is a bad thing to say, but he knows how to tell this story to move from the outside to the interior to really get a sense that you are now under the ground in this, in this facility. And you get a sense of geography. I do agree with what you're saying about Martin Campbell as uh, an excellent storyteller. And I think pair that excellent storytelling with like, you know, the Derek Meddings miniatures, Phil Mayhew's fantastic cinematography. And I think you just have a recipe for something really great. Yeah. And the thing that we've done about a really good job of reintroducing new bonds to you. Mm, true. Yeah. Yeah. And the, we've talked about it in the, in the, in memoriam uh, episode earlier this year when, um, Terry Rawlings, the editor who had to be convinced to come and do this film, um, really hits it out the park, I think. And, you know, that was his one bond outing. Mm. Oh, yeah, and he's a great editor, like Alien, Blade Runner. He did a lot of Ridley mm-hmm. Scott films, um, some of Ridley yeah. Scott's best. He's, yeah, really brilliant, brilliant work. Um, this is this is some of David's favorite stuff, you, right? All the um, garbage technology. Yep. <laughs> Um, can you hear me, guys? Yep, faintly. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, it's kind of. But like, I've, I've known um, a lot of people who've um, enjoyed uh, Natalia's cardigan in this, <laughs> in this scene for some reason. Um, uh, this this whole kind of um, hacking thing is quite uh, quite amusing. Um, you know, to kind of to. to to, to play into the idea that that's how they're going to get traced later on is, um, yeah. so it's a nice, again, a nice bit of sort of foreshadowing. Mm. You know, and um, Boris, the um, uh, Boris, the tech expert who uses single words for passwords. Um, well, in yeah. 90, in <laughs> 1995, that would have been secure enough, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even like yeah, monkey must have one, three one, would have a password. One alphanumeric. <laughs> and I don't think that's, I mean, when we talk about the film's aging, it's like when I look at some older Bond films and even see the tracking systems in their car with the maps, I love it. I dig it. I'm like, yeah, I buy into that being the 60s and there's a map and you can follow it. I think the problem with this film is that we all know collectively more about digital culture, social media, we are all computer savvy. So when we see this, uh, we're like, yeah, that doesn't happen. That doesn't work. That doesn't seem to make sense. And probably in the time they were trying to keep it updated and trying to keep it fresh. And it's hard to know, say in 1995, where computer culture is going to go and where it's going to take us. But I think that that's one aspect of this film that did not age well, that I think people sort of watch and they're like, yeah, no, I can't, I can't suspend my disbelief. It's like James Bond in Die Another Day, you know, paragliding or, or surf gliding behind like the CGI thing, right? Like we're all like, that's a cartoon behind you. You're not doing it. And it's difficult. And I think the Brosnan era, just because of its connection or its intersection with changing technological developments, digital culture, film culture um, uh, effects, I think that it's just at an interesting point where certain films come across more believable um, mm-hmm. over others, just based on where it is in terms of its relation with technology. Yeah. What's interesting to your point, Lisa, is that uh, we're going to see a couple of cardboard cutout mix. 
Um, I think what you're talking least about like the, the Goldfinger tracker and stuff. I think that's an example of like, they weren't mm-hmm. trying to do it five minutes into the future. They were trying to just like, what, how would this work if we, if we wanted it to work? Whereas with Goldeneye, they're trying to make it like mm-hmm. just ahead of contemporary. And that means it gets out of date real quick. They could have just made this fantasy yeah, yeah. and yeah, it would have probably I, I, worked better than trying to make it realistic. When, 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 they're, when they're doing all the, um, you know, the spiking stuff, uh, it, if they'd stuck to uh, the terminology of the time, they would have done far better than just talk nonsense, yeah. which, is what they, uh, which is what they did. And uh, it it didn't mm. it, it wasn't right at the time and it and yeah and it, it's aged very ba- badly because of that. Mm. Yeah, with um, with the CGI, it's interesting that you can you can have basically cardboard presented to you um, mm. as a as a MIG, um, and it looks more effective than than the CGI wave from going over there. Mm. I love her face in this. She's just you know enjoying herself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I love, yeah. I love his face because he looks at her like she's like she lost her mind for doing it and he, i mean he's the <laughs> right. villain right he's supposed yeah. to like, he's supposed to be into it and he's like no this is a bridge too far for what we're doing here like there's like this villainous plot and then like she's a step beyond and i i love that dynamic between the the two of them i think that it just gives us just a little base mark that, yeah, we think she's a little bit off, but he's telling us, like, even for him, she's way off the mark. Right. Yeah, the thing is, he knew that they were going to go in there and kill everyone. He just right. wasn't expecting them to enjoy it. not expecting her to have an orgasm while right. killing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Compare that to License yeah. to Kill, where Dario's backstory is that he was, you know, he was kicked out of the Contras for being uh, too brutal and here we are with Xenia actually being, you know, <laughs> too nuts for the villain. Too brutal. Too yeah. brutal, yeah. Mm. Mm. Some yeah. Derek Meddings magic in space. Yeah. We're setting up um, Godfrey John um, really as, a, as the main villain. And it, you know, he's, he's a good, good actor for it. So, but it's kind of misdirection at this point. Yeah. I know I just criticize the technology. The one thing that I do like, I'm a big fan of maps in James Bond. I do like the way that the map is set up with like the two little squiggles that come together to show you what's going on in, in the attack zone. I do just love the way that maps are still being presented. And, and I think that there's still a reliance that like the audience needs to know the scope and the scale of what's going on. And we still need to visually represent to them um, sort of the geopolitical landscape and the ramifications. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember you mentioned the maps l- last week, actually. And uh, just talking about maps, uh, in Moonraker, there, there's a, a map with... Oh, Calvin, you've got that. In, in Moonraker, there, there's a, a map of the uh, the world and the orbit of the of the uh, Moonraker shuttles. And, yep. Uh, uh, I, I would love mm. to have that, even though I don't like Moonraker particularly. I, I would love to have that on my on my uh, computer as, as a desktop, but I, I've never been able to find it. There's a there, there's a similar map, and you only live twice as well at Spectre yeah, headquarters you're right, in the you're volcano. Right, yeah. 
Hmm. And in fact, I there's a Pink Panther movie. Uh, I forget which one, which d- goes all in on you know Blofeld and Bond tropes, and uh, where Dreyfus goes absolutely nuts and you know. <laughs> in his zest to kill Clouseau has a head, you know, has a villain's lair and has a big map as well. And I'm wondering if they strikes again. I think that is, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. From from, no, from 70. Thank you. I I couldn't remember which one. Uh, It's actually my favorite of the, of the series. And likewise. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It is just, it's, it's like, it's so crazy. Yeah. And, and they, and there were rumors that they were going to like put a bond character in it, but Hmm. didn't happen. It was in a supermarket tabloid here in the U S um anyway I, I don't want to go too far but yes maps are a big thing with villains lairs and bond movies and so forth so here we are with new money penny new money penny for the time here with samantha bond best name by the way when i samantha tell my students, yeah when i tell my students i'm like and money penny is played by samantha bond they always laugh and they're like oh and i'm like but she's really good but her name is just perfect right Mm. Oh, I think she's great here. Like the chemistry between the two of them is really, yeah, sizzling. I, I absolutely love it. And well, we're I also about so. to meet Michael Kitchen yeah. as Bill Tanner and mm-hmm. still not like Bill Tanner in the books, but like a lot closer than, uh, <laughs> than for you, uh, for your well, eyes the, only. The, the thing Ooh. I like about the version of Bill Tanner here is he confides in Bond, like some right. personal thoughts um, to yeah, the detriment no, 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 of his no. career. You know, that's, that's a shortcut to the audience that they trust each other and they've known each other a long time. And I think that's right. a pretty good touch. Hmm. And now we meet Dame Judy for the first time. Mm. Not a fan of CNN. I point. love Judy Dunn. Likewise. I, yeah, I think she's fantastic. Um, yeah. I think Bond works better when he has a, a female M. I think there's there is just a naturally inbuilt uh, uh, friction to that. I, I that I think just works so much better than especially at this point we'd had Robert Brown and he had his moment in License to Kill, but for the most part he was just sort of like a you know Taste affable older. like give the <laughs> here's your mission Bond go off and do it sort of thing. Um, where from this point on I feel like we actually re- really get good bond m dialogue scenes um occasionally in brosnan um but like because those passages are some of my favorites in fleming's works like the bond m scenes the the tension the dialogue between the two of them is fantastic and i don't know if the films really uh, captured that beyond the first few conneries and i feel like they capture that with judy well also just to reinforce your point so we have our first it's a topical reference with the with the M scene where she says something like we don't want to get our news from CNN. Hmm. Now it's it's hard to imagine any kind of topical reference like that in like the Connery films for example. So hmm. this is a, a a little tiny example of how this movie was trying to advance the uh the proceedings. Hmm. And isn't it the irony in Skyfall is that James Bond gets the news from CNN, which then <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is so like it's an Judy, interesting book ending. From Wolf Blitzer, who ends up also being in a Mission Impossible movie, it's like you know what that, that guy's agent must be really good at getting him in all these films. You know, you know what's funny with Wolf Blitzer, and it also is, blends this notion of journalism and news media. So, yeah. yes, Wolf Blitzer when he's doing his film cameos looks like he's a bad actor well i don't know why he can't just like read it straight to camera like he's doing the news it's <laughs> well that's I don't okay know. you, you, you watch his performances on the screen it's terrible and it's like why not just 
do it straight to camera like you do. He's, anyway. he's not the greatest news anchor either. I'm, no. I'm totally befuddled why he has such prominence at CNN. He has no opinions. That's why. I, this is the scene that really caught me with the way that Campbell and everybody lit lit golden eyes. There's a lot of like, I don't know the technical term for it. I should, but it's like when they do the highlighting on the side of a face. Yeah. It's all through this film mm. and it's different to the rest of the series. Here's your cardboard mix, Ben. Mm. The model, they're the model mix, sorry. Not the cardboard ones. That's, again, this is, you know. Yeah, some of this model med, work isn't, yeah. <laughs> this is thir- 30, yeah. Years, 30 years of experience with Meddings starting off with like Thunderbirds doing explosions and snow and stuff. Fireball XL5. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of Jerry Anderson shows. Yeah. So when I first saw this at the theater in 95, this um, falling monitor rig, which was in the in a cross, I something's always bugged me about this film, and I'm going to ask Campbell about it, is there's a scene later where she goes into a church and sees a similar hanging cross from the ceiling. And I always wondered ah. if that was supposed to be symbolic, like the was it cross of St. George or it was a religious thing or not, or it's just some, just some touch that they put in, but it always stands out to me. It's one of those weird, it's like the cherry jam jars in quantum of solace. It's just, just sticks out for some reason to me. I'll be curious. The answer it gives you, I suspect it's intentional in some way or form. Right. That's really interesting. Actually, I've never noticed that, but you're exactly right. Cause she does walk underneath the cross and they do have a point of having the camera sort of go under it as Linger. if from her perspective. Um, yeah, it, probably. Yeah. It, yeah, I've never noticed that. Hmm. Hmm. I love that we go through this uh, experience with her as well. Like, I think, especially as you're introducing a new Bond, it's quite brave to sort of put him on pause for 20 minutes and give you sort of a new character to follow for a while. But I I, I think Natalia is one of the best co-stars in the series. I think she's fantastic. I think the actress is fantastic. Um and I love yes. that they really give us the time to uh, build a relationship with her, really. They really linger on some of these scenes, and I care about her, and I want her to get out of this. And, and I like and- the fact that she's dirty and sweaty, and she's, I mean, she's going through this trauma, and she's screaming, and she's scared. Like, we're really getting the human side of this lead protagonist uh, of a woman in a Bond film. And that's what allows us to connect with her. It's not just the fact that she's gone through stuff in sort of a superficial way. It really is this emotional uh, trial uh, for her. And just sort of a shout out to the dogs who are the real heroes. <laughs> of yep. I, my favorite characters. If I was in this situation and I saw a pack of dogs, I mean, I love my dog. We're all dog lovers on this on this uh, podcast. But I would have the same type of feeling of relief knowing I'm in good hands. I've got some cute dogs who are going to save me. So shout out to the dogs. <laughs> also, um, I, Eric Sarah is going to get criticized his uh, fair amount. But uh, in that one scene where she's getting out, actually, that I did think his score right there was effective. Completely agree. It, yeah. yeah a, a rare moment of compliment for Eric Sarah, probably. So, um, <laughs> this watch along. Casting, um, casting Natalia, throw this in there. Originally, it was going to be Elle McPherson. Um, oh. Mm. But then she, then she took the gig at, um, on Batman and Robin. So uh, we were saved, hmm. I think. Well, and, yeah, um, and she was like hardly in that movie. She's in right. like five minutes. And then <laughs> Eva Herzegova, I don't know how you pronounce her name, um, she passed on the role as well. So 
this is one of those things again um, that where the we've ended up with the right people in the right places, as they say in quantum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, by by, uh, by luck, if not by planning, but but it happened yeah. nonetheless. Mm. Um, coming up, we're almost um, right now. We've got Bond, Tanner, and M talking, but we're going to come up on the the M Bond scene in her office. So at that ninety five, uh, so in nineteen ninety five, at that James Bond convention, uh, Campbell came out, talked, and he and he showed the clip of that scene, and talked about what he was trying to get across. Um, everybody knows the story by now, but you know, at MI five, the British equivalent of the FBI had had a uh, female head, and mm-hmm. that supposedly gave them the idea of having a you know a female yeah. M. Still at Remington, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, he played the scene and then made comments about what he was trying to get across because, you know, she's very tough. But then at the very end of the scene, she tells Bond to come back alive. So it was, you know, she's more than just a, you know, tough, gruff boss. And I just want to give a shout out to uh, Pierce Brosnan and the fact that he's probably one of the few bonds and this might be controversial who I look at him and I think, and I feel that he's bond and he wears a suit well. And I just buy into him without him saying a word in my mind, he would be somebody who I would picture as being James Bond, regardless of whether the characterization is pure, say to Fleming's original um, viewpoint. I just buy into him being bond just on looks alone. And I think that is his greatest strength and also greatest weakness in this role. Right, right. He's done a lot of criticism. He looks perfect for the role, but what does he bring to it? I think is a lot of underlying criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, of course, on the on the message on message boards you see references to Braza, and it's usually not uh, done in a complimentary way. Um, I don't know. But for, um, for an uh, for an opening outing, um having not worked on a film of this scale before coming in off a six year gap, going against the press winds of bonds out of date and it's over and all the rest of it. Um, pretty bloody good job. No, and no, in fact, maybe this might be the time to bring up that general, uh, subject. I mean, this movie, uh, I mean, there was a ton of pressure on it and the budget, it was, you know, more plentiful than License to Kill, but it was, you know, relatively tight for blockbuster status. I think it was about fifty million, maybe. Yeah. Um, and um, and and also, I mean, in '94, in the summer of '94, it was like a day or two before the official announcement of Brosnan getting the role. The Wall Street Journal had a front page story. You know, a, a, you know, a, you know, that one of their, at the time, famously deeply reported, you know, feature stories on the, on the, on page one. And it was talking about, you know, there were like other people approached. It talked about, oh, oh, I can't remember his name now. He's the guy who was in, um, the old, the guy, uh, why you go down that, um, Recollection. I just want to point out that Bond doesn't put any ice in his bourbon in this scene, and then four yeah. years later, that's what tips them off <laughs> to King. So mm, their drinking habits change. M's, M's drinking habits change. 
Sorry, go Well, on. it is earlier on in the day and the world is not enough. So maybe he just needs to water down his bourbon. <laughs> the, 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 the guy I was thinking of was the star of Taken. Uh, and I'm still... Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Yeah, he supposedly was in the running at one point, but it turned him down. Um, so yeah, this this Wall Street Journal story Don't went into Ralph, a lot of Ralph detail. Ray Fiennes as well. Ray Fiennes, yes, I think he he came up in that story. Um, oh, Michael G. Wilson cameo coming up in one of the. And guys if anybody goes, table. if anybody goes through nineteen ninety four newspaper clippings, Hugh Grant, which is ridiculous, but that he was Hugh Grant was a tabloid favorite of the bullshit rumor mill at the time. Well, and didn't Roger Moore like mm. say he might do okay? Like, like not that he had a vote, <laughs> right? No, and that just you know. Can I just do a throwback? Can I just do a throwback to the Judy Dench scene that we just uh, passed? Yeah. Yeah. That to me is probably one of my favorite scenes of I don't know the Bond franchise as she provides us with sort of a critique of James Bond. And I think one thing that Goldeneye does is it sort of tells us the world around Bond has changed. It's changed geopolitically. It's also changed with respect to women. Women are now much more empowered and in positions of power. But the film also gives us this idea or impression that we still need Bond in his old fashioned ways. And so you see, I think, a lot of the tension that comes and the interesting tension and the dynamics that come in the Brosden era is the way that he's interacting with different women. And Judy Dench, at least in GoldenEye, sort of holds nothing back and says, you're sort of old fashioned, you're sexist, you're misogynistic, you know, and I, I know what you're saying about me, but I have no compunction about sending you to your death. Um, and I like the way that she sort of stands up for herself because she is a different type of M who comes through the civil service, um, who does look at the numbers, the number crunching that happens, which is in many ways a new way of thinking versus having, say, admirals or military oriented people um, having uh, that background being M. And so I think it's an interesting representation. I think it's an interesting dynamic that then gets developed across the Brosnan era. And of course it shifts in the Daniel Craig era, but it's one of those like key moments that people sort of look at and talk about, you know, the key moments of James Bond, they look at that, that relationship and especially that engagement between the two of them. Mm, now we're, we're coming great. up, we're coming up to uh, Brosnan's first encounter with Q, Brosnan Bond's first encounter with Q. Now, I saw this like two or three times in the first run theater, but I saw it one more time in a second run theater because back in those days, uh, the home video window was longer. It was more like six months instead of three months. So I went in there and when I was watching the scene, I could see the microphone at the top of the screen, but clearly yeah. you don't see it here. And I no. don't, I didn't see it on any of the first run theaters. And all I can think of is it's the that, way that the projector matting is not set up correctly in the crap theater. Yeah. That's it. And it was so it was so distracting. I thought, how could I miss this? There's no way this could have it's, gotten out with the with that shot for real. It's become a thing. It's become a thing with directors to put boom mics at the top edges of the frame so that the projectionists have to frame the film correctly when they screen it. Not so much now with digital distribution, but back mm. in the day. Okay. Yeah. But it was so strange. Like, wait a minute, I've seen this movie three times like how am i how am i only seeing the mic for the first time and i saw the explanation later it was pretty much what james just said um but yeah wow that was very disturbing like oh, yeah you can't spend that much money and have the mic right so obviously for the, and there for the, for the kids that's a box that you used to go into put coins in it and uh, you could call somebody <laughs> 
I think this Q scene, I, I think it is the strongest in the series, actually. But I think um, a, a, just another example of Martin Campbell being a, a great director is just there are so many Q scenes in, in previous films in the series where we really do linger on the gags. If Smithers has an arm cast, which is going to fly off and break a dummy's head, we're going to they, they almost wait for the but um but um but um bum at the end. Here it's just like gag, 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 gag. It's really economical. It's really good. I think Brosnan and Desmond have great chemistry as well. I think Desmond here is more wacky inventor than he is sort of grumbling civil servant, which I think works well with Brosnan's playboy charm. I think it, it this whole scene is just perfect. The best you've seen in the what series. Is that in the background of the sandwich? I've never spotted it before. It's like a what is that thing? <laughs> is that a chassis or something? Is that? I've no idea, actually. I was about to say one of the gags, and it's just strictly a visual gag, and it doesn't linger on it. They're wheeling out that phone box, and the poor right. guy is still stealing it. it. That's exactly yeah. how you should do these things right. as well. Like if that was a Roger Moore film, they'd have re- you know we'd have had a whole like four or five shots of the guy being wheeled out with Bond raising an eyebrow or something. But it's perfect, it, just in the background. It's great. Right. It would have been at least 30 seconds solid screen time. <laughs> <laughs> Here's just, you know, if you see it, you appreciate it. If you don't, well, you know, too bad, but yeah. we're moving on. This is we are at, um, Epson Racecourse, right? Race course, I think. Mm. Epson, Epson Racecourse. Um, and here we have Joe Don Baker back again in the series, obviously as a different character since he got killed in The Living Daylights. And... Um, mm. No, the story behind that is he'd worked with Campbell before on a couple of productions, and that's why. Okay. They brought well, um, very, very famously. Uh, right, and he is, and his character is Wade, and he is named after Kevin Wade, the one screenwriter who didn't get a credit. So <laughs> he, he was the guy. He was the guy who created the character. So it's like, well, I may not get a credit, but I'm going to get my name in it somehow. So. <laughs> We're also about to go um, into. Uh, Somerset House, which is mm. uh, where plays plays two locations in Brosnan's uh, tenure. Uh, one, a Russian square that we're about to see, and two, MI6 headquarters in London, or at least the Admiralty Building, I think it's supposed to be. Um, so it's quite interesting to see that you can take two locations and make them two entirely different places. You can also take parts of England and make it look like Russia. Lisa, you had a question. Yeah, I have a question. Are, I mean, in this scene, you see sort of with the tattoo, the muffy, Bond in many ways is sort of like emasculating his, his, his ally in this film. And then I'm thinking of the Russian ally who shows up in The World Is Not Enough and mm, dies. You know, yeah, yeah, he dies and The World Is Not Enough. Is this like a trend in a general sense, or is this just like a Brosnan thing about like having his allies who are just, you know, a step down below him? So he has like the crummy car, he's got the hat, he's got the tattoo, and Bond gets to sort of one up his male ally because typically what happens is this happens with Bond and the Bond girl, right? Where he's usually pretty cool with Felix Leiter, right? They're on par, they're equals. And he's usually one-upping the woman in his life, his counterpart on screen. Whereas in this film, he's not necessarily one-upping Natalia Simonova. The two of them just have like different elements and she yells at him all the time. And so I'm wondering if that is shifting towards his male allies in the Brosnan era because of the shifting, say, gender politics that are taking place in the film. I, just, I don't know. I just was thinking of that right now. 
Well, there was a brief moment when Wade tried to one-up Bond and talked about your your code words, your code phrases, something like that. Yeah. And how he, basically how he thought it was silly. So then Bond apparently felt the need to reassert his authority in this relationship. I'd say, Lisa, I think you're right. And he also does it to uh, John Cleese as well. And his replacement of Q, he kind of talks yeah. down to him, doesn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just an interesting shift. Um, so I think you also get this kind of Cold War kind of, or at least sort of the fall of the Cold War feeling of like Bond being extremely sophisticated, but the people who are kind of based in Russia living that kind of, uh, um, you know, communist life. Um, and it's, and it's that stark contrast between Bond's kind of debonair life in, in London and, being stuck in a little bit like uh, you have with the uh, CIA in the under the stairs thing in Quantum Solace. It's, you know, Jack Wade is stuck out there in, um, in Russia. Mm. Um, also a note on that square, it's um, you know, they're parked and people are just walking around in circles. It doesn't go anywhere. So it's quite <laughs> interesting to sort of see walking around. <laughs> On the on the product placement front, we've uh, got IBM computers, which uh, aren't quite the powerhouses they once were. Mm. And also, when Bond was flying to Russia, he was on British Airways because, of course, Pan Am had been the official airline, so to speak, of the Bond series, but it had gone out of business between '89 and '95. So they had to have a new official airlines. So this Airways was it. That's a good point. So that's that's actually Russia. Now we're now we're cutting to. So it's just the kind of the cut between the two things. Yeah, East London. Um, <laughs> and it's this kind of, um, you know, the nice way they do that. But also, I, I, one of my pet peeves in movies is where they do like these, these telegraph shots, but they do like the voiceover, like you can hear what they're saying in the car. It's kind of like... Right. Um, well, there was there was a yeah, cut scene yeah. here where Zukovsky's um, meeting a Pakistani arms dealer, right, with his counterfeit guns, and they they it, it look. Yeah. If you watch it, it it does not so fit he, in the film at all, and it did a good job cutting out. Here, here's this. Is this the bit I thought of earlier? Where she yeah she looks up and there it is. Yeah. It's, this, this, huh. this, this, it's not this a coincidence. Church is, yeah, this hmm. church is in London, um, and it's in several several movies actually. Um, if an object is the center of a shot, it's not uh, an happenstance. It's it's intentional for whatever reason, whatever. And point. then, of course, at the end, the cradle falls on Trevelyan in the same camera kind of shot. But yeah, <gasps> I've never noticed that. Oh it, yeah, it's bugged oh, I love me. That. For, That's, it's yeah, bugged me good. for twenty five years. <laughs> in fact, just as she was running, you could see it at the top of the shot again. So yeah, whereabouts is this church, huh. man? You think without? Um, I will put it in the comments, but it is in London. Um, this right. is something that um, this really, really annoyed me when I saw this in the in the theatres. Um, you know, uh, Sarkovsky steps out, and Bond puts the also PPK, seven point six five millimeter. Right, he does that whole speech, and he's I've, I've killed everybody I know who has them, and then his guard puts a Walter PPK to Bond's head. Like, oh, only three people I know except have that this guy. Um, <laughs> except that guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's, that kind of has always bugged me a little bit. Um, uh. Hello, Mini Driver. 
Um, mm. Yeah, fun fun fact: Minnie Driver can actually sing really well, so she had to kind of like nerf her performance here. Well, and also just kind of in terms of historical information. So at the time, Russia, you know, the Soviet Union was dead. It was kind of like the Wild West and, you know, everything was going on. And of course, now it's a lot different because Putin essentially is trying to recreate the Soviet Union all over again mm -hmm. and has largely succeeded. So, uh, but at this time, you know, the capitalism was, had kind of run amok in, uh, in Russia and mm. um, which is how... I mean, that's the general background yeah. to explain and, what's going on. And and this sequence here was the first shot of the whole film. So Brosnan's mm. first day oh, was getting was shot between the legs. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's a shame because um, Mini, Mini Driver uh, is a very competent actor and um, it's an interesting comedic little uh, cameo, I guess, but um, it's a shame that, that uh, her star was on the ascendant and then kind of um, had that kind of taken away from her. Really. And a connection to For Your Eyes Only, she's wearing almost like the indoor version of BB <laughs> dolls. The outfit there, also um, yeah. red. Just wanted to throw that out there, the connection. See, this is how we connect our films week by week. There's usually a <laughs> that's it. <laughs> All the, that's also, the, cowboy, also, cow, the cowboy hat double bill. Also, this scene is kind of a, it's not quite breaking the fourth wall, but it's awful close because at one point uh, the, uh, the Russian guy talks about sophisticated secret agent and kind of like, you know, it's like this acknowledgement to the audience. Yes, we, we, we know that this is kind of outlandish, but uh but you're paying, so we're going to give it to you anyway. And I'm digging the blue shirt with the gray suit that's going on here. I'm a Brosnan fan, just in case you're wondering. Just wanted to throw that out there. I'm going to throw out really? some. Seriously? I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> I how great he looks in this film, but I'm digging the blue shirt with the, with the gray suit. Compliments. Yeah. The, uh, blue and, the blue and the gray is... Uh, was done originally in Bocchino, um blue cop, uh, blue cop, blue cop shirt with a um, grey shark skin suit. So it's kind of harking back to the to that, I suppose. It's very classically classically Bond. Mm. Uh, I do I do kind of like the fact that you know it's in, in terms of costuming, you're contrasting Coltrane's um, fairly shabbiness and muted tones. Mm -hmm. Bond's, Bond's very cleanly cut um, and, um, you know, that, that, that kind of creates a, um, a sense of character between the two men. And even and even this bit where Brosnan's looking slightly uncomfortable about, uh, about the British um, involvement, um, uh, he does very, very well, I think. You know, it's... Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't linger on it too long, and just enough to kind of acknowledge that it wasn't wasn't great. This is also in London, uh, this hotel. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot of a lot of shots, uh, <clears throat> a lot of locations that are uh, kind of cheated by being um, you know, shot in the UK, and it's a uh, and it's something that they continue to do throughout the series. Mm. 
Just on that previous scene with Bond and Zukovsky, I just kind of want to throw out there, like, because we talk, we've talked about flashbacks in Bond films a few times on this podcast before. If there was ever a scene that needed flashbacks, it's that scene with Zukovsky talking about the Lienz Cossacks, all this kind of stuff. It's a big chunk of exposition, data dumping. Um, and especially as it follows on from Bond talking about, like, oh, the payoff will be in the blah, blah, blah. It's just, it is a lot of very tangential information that we're not really uh you have no sort of frame of reference to it's um yeah if there was any kind of visual way of expressing that i think it would have helped stick in the audience's minds more because i i still suspect that a lot of people probably don't really know what alex beef is with right. you know, why he becomes a villain and all that right. kind of stuff and i think a, a clearer yeah. indication there would have been helpful yeah and it's not like uh you could put a hyperlink in the movie oh yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> to the Wikipedia page, or like a Marvel comics where there's a footnote and it says, "Oh, go go see issue 52 uh, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of um, flashbacks personally um, in, in movies, but I do feel like it could have been explained, as you say, Calvin, explained a lot better because it's um, it's really the entire motivation for Alex, mm. uh, for Alex in, in the movie. Um, but I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, assuming he's in his late thirties, I mean, he's held this beef for like best part of three decades, and then he's he's working his way up through the special forces into MI6 just to get revenge <laughs> for his. I mean, this is like he's going the long way. One around. day I'll get them. One day. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in the meantime, it, it, just like that Spectre uh, script draft where uh, Blofeld became a super villain because Bond bluffed him playing poker with uh, nuts for chips. I mean, like, okay, you beat me, Bond. <laughs> right. So I'm going to be a super villain, spend the rest of my life trying to get back at you. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> to sort of comment on the scene that's happening, I think this is an interesting dynamic between Bond and Onatop, um, with him sort of being able to push away or resist. I mean, she's challenging him on a phallic nature, um, trying to, you know, overpower him, overtake him. He has to succumb to, you know, the strength of her legs, and he finds ways to weasel his way out of that type of grip. And Brosnan has probably the best, like, strangulation pain face that seems to come up, like, in every single film. <laughs> like, that's his signature. So, full credit, Ben will attest yeah, to this. Maddie, Maddie Bauer on our forums came up with Brosnan pain face pain years face, ago. Yeah. And that's hers. That's her claim to internet fame that's as so she came up with pain fame. Well, yeah. pain also, in that, in that sequence, okay, at one point, Bond fights her off and then actually turns his back on her and starts to walk away. And of course she attacks. Like, Bond, that's not very smart. Well, oh, I kind of love that because he's so like, he, he, do, he just kind of doesn't think of her as a threat. And then he's obviously caught out when it's like, oh God, no, yeah. actually, she's really fucking strong. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, exactly. question... So this after is, you know, after he, after he overpowers her in the steam bath, he gets changed into like his suit and everything. How how does that happen? Does, well, and she changes clothes too, yeah. and drives him there. Did, did they just come to some kind of agreement where they're going to get the clothes on and then pick it up later? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> well, e either that or he held a gun on her while she got dressed, and then he dressed still holding a gun on her. And <laughs> only got into a suit, which might have gotten a little complicated when he had to tie his tie. Um, uh, did, did you did you ever get lost 
in the uh, the game on this level. Oh yes, <laughs> actually, it's the hardest level in the game. I, I I think where you're trying to like navigate this maze and it's all that Nintendo sixty four like kind of yeah. foggy background and you just don't know where you're heading. Yeah. So we're just now having the big reveal that oh, it's really 006, which of course <laughs> they said in all the trailers. He goes up against 006, the man who knows him best. So this is kind of an anticlimactic reveal. That's why I hate oh. these kind of things, yeah. Um, I, you know, like, it's like the Terminator 2 when they were like, Arnie's a good guy? And you're like, ah, oh, we, we know that. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like the setting of this. I like the fact that it's the graveyard of past um, these 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 statues and these uh, emblems of say the USSR or Russia and its history. And now they're literally pushed aside and put in like this graveyard. And then mm. you have the return from the dead of you know the villain. I like the use of shadow. I like the message that it's sending that like geopolitically things are happening. Um, is it a little bit like cheesy? Sure, but it's a Bond film, and like I can, I can accept a little bit of cheese um, in this film. But I really do like the setting and the meaning and how it's yeah. how it's being framed. Meanwhile, if you were doing a Bond movie now and it was set here, you'd have to have all these work crews putting all this stuff back up, thanks to Putin. Well, well, <laughs> and if you, if you did it in the and if you did it in the US, it'd be all the Confederate statues and been taken oh, down. Oh God, yes. <laughs> yeah. But in, 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 Confederate statues that weren't built until like 1910, right? Um, so, by the way, but in Vegas, there is actually a, a a place like this where it's all the old Vegas signs and stuff, and you can go and take a tour of the the graveyard of old Vegas. Huh. That's awesome. Um, like, I would literally I like- go to Vegas just for that. Yeah, I like. I understand how that um, Alec. So I was just going to say, yeah. I understand that Alec was supposed to have a much more disfigured face than this, but they dialed it back yeah. for the uh, for, for for the ratings. Um, and uh, uh, also, there's a beautiful. And Calvin, you'll appreciate this being a, a film student. A really beautiful shot where they use a particular lens, which is a split focus lens, where mm. they have. Um, Alec and Bond on both sides with both in focus with the center out of focus. Um, mm. it's a, it's, it's a technique that's not often used in cinema. Um, mm. but it's a bit requires a particular lens to do it. And, uh, I've always appreciated that shot. Yeah. In, um, well, well, a couple things, uh, one in that uh, exchange, uh, Trevelyan was lit in such a way to emphasize the disfigurement that he did have. Um, you know, that's lit up and, you know, the rest of his face is in shadow. And second, uh, in the Michael France draft, Trevelyan was more of a mentor to Bond, an old Yeah, we, we should do a whole hmm. episode about Bond, yeah. the, the unmade golden eye because it's almost Sean a different Connery film. Is to play. Oh, can Anthony I just Hopkins. make a, I know I make it all the time, but can I make a comment about disfigurement in Bond films? I think that it is, and I get that there's history to it, but I also think it's a problematic representation. I'm teaching a course on body image, and we do talk about media representations and how disfigurement is oftentimes aligned with villainy. And that puts a lot of negative attention and pressure on people who in real life are disfigured um, and become spectacles. Uh, so I, kn- I know that it's being utilized here and I know it's utilized for Blofeld who comes back in the most recent film Spectre, but it's something that 
I always sort of question its necessity. Can't we just have a villain who has villainous intent rather than having some sort of physical disability or deformity that signifies um, or represents or is or is a signifier of, of their intent? So just want you to throw it out there. Just letting well, you know. Well, it's it's a well, the one guy who really took it really far along those lines was one of the continuation novels, Sebastian Fox, where the guy practically had a monkey's paw instead of a hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they, like, did, uh, they did also with Silver, you know, the, the idea that he's yep. passing, passing is, um, you know, able-bodied and not disfigured, and he, then he removes that part of his whole, you know, he's only as villainous as he can be when he's actually taken that uh, prosthetic out of his, his, his face, which I think is, uh, you know, really kind of, uh, they didn't need to do that. It doesn't add anything to it. In my mind, anyway. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. And it's different if it was done, like, it's different, say, in the case of Silva, to represent it as being, like, this is what happens because he took the cyanide caplet and he's left disfigured and deformed because of it. Even then, because it's done so regularly and in repetition and and it's done so often that it becomes more of a trope rather than being, say, a representation of, of, of personal trauma. Like it just, it seems like it's just, it's overused so much. And it's just, it, it, it creates a lot of pressure. And I just don't think we think about ableism a lot in the media and some of the messages that are sent. And it's a question like, is it really necessary? And again, we can critique it and be like, maybe it's not necessary and still like the film. Both things can be true. But it's just thinking about like what would be the significance of having this on people who do have to live with deformities day in and day out. hundred percent agree. Yeah. This is another set where they use the lighting really well. Mm. Right. And we're uh, going to see the guy who we saw earlier, who was kind of like the chairman of that committee. Um, I'm not exactly sure his title. He's going to come in and question uh, the two of them. And I, the best I thought he was, Michigan. Yeah, yeah who, I has thought, a bit, who has a bigger role in the game. <laughs> yeah, does, yeah. I, I thought I thought the actor you know did a really good job in that, and yeah, unfortunately really we don't get to see him very much. I, yeah, I wish he I wish he had a bigger role. I genuinely do. I, and in a way, I think with all of the script changes and everything, he probably did have a bigger role at one point, and it just feels like it kind of got trimmed away. Mm. I think the film is quite. I mean. God, we've got like what, like four pretty major villains in Orumov, uh, Zenya, Boris, uh, and Alec, obviously. And uh, it's quite something for, to have such an ensemble of villains, and each one of them has like standout moments. Each one brings their own personality into it. It's it's really quite. Right. Um, I, th- I think the casting up across the board is fantastic in this film. To say that there are so many characters in it, and each yeah. of them are really memorable and great yeah. in their own rights. I think that's the criticism of License to Kill gets, isn't it? Right. I think that's the criticism of License to Kill gets with Sanchez's team. It's that they all kind of, apart from Dario, they all kind of blur together a little bit. Right. They're thugs. They're not really. Yeah. Uh, mm. And they don't have Sanchez, their own motivations. Yeah. In, in this, everybody has their own motivations, right? Which is really well done. Yeah. That's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. As we'll see with Oromov, I love when he comes in and he's clearly been drinking, not sleeping. He's really panicked when when he comes into the room in a in a minute or so. I, that's something that I wanted to, to to just quickly say was like it's interesting that Bond can drink 
and drink and drink. Um, um, and his sort of alcoholism is, uh, isn't considered to be uh, problematic, but uh, with, with General Oromov, it's like it's, he is definitely an alcohol, alcoholic. He, he's constantly drinking from his little flask. And it's a, this representation of like um, certain people are allowed to drink and certain people aren't. And it's, um, it's kind of interesting. Mm. And I noticed it with Milton Crest as well, you know, how yes. how he's kind of just a, a, a slurring drunk, but Bond can drink every martini under the sun and, and still be okay. Hmm. Can I add Except to that? in Quantum of Solace. Can well, I add to that? Because I think that there's a double standard too, and we'll eventually get to it when it comes to kissing Natalia. Whereas like when, when Sean Bean, when Trevelyn does it, it's seen as being a bad thing because he's forcing himself on her and she pushes him away. But when Bond does it, she eventually succumbs to it and it's okay. And it's almost like there's this double standard that when Bond does the same thing that villains do, for some reason, it is a lot more acceptable and it's framed in a different way as being positive, yeah. heroic, that there's positive results to it versus when villains and hench people do it, it's seen in a negative light and yet it's the very same behavior. And I, I always sort of question it because if it's bad for one, it's bad for all. And it's interesting that there are exceptions to the rules and maybe it it sort of opens up this notion of privilege. Like when you're privileged, you can kind of get away with things that other people cannot do. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a representation, at least to me here, it's in, in good and bad terms of privilege. Um, but it's still the exact same behavior that gets, you know, it, it's allowed yeah. in one sense and championed in one sense. Like, look at Bond, he can drink. I mean, I've had, I was saying on, on, on Twitter, I did a watch party on the weekend and I had my first martini and I couldn't believe that Bond drinks more than one of these and is functional. Like, how does this even happen? Like I was like three sheets to the wind and I'm like, I need to focus on my computer. Like I can't even type at this moment. I was that familiar with it. It was, it was a lot. And so it's one of those things where it's just it's an interesting sort of setup that Bond is able to sort of do things and be things and enact things that other people simply can't do. And it's good in one way and bad in another. So, yeah, this is, no, I, I, I know um, what you're saying. Yeah. I, I couldn't do most of the things that Bond does. However, I will stand up for myself on the drinking front. I drink right. quite a lot. <laughs> and I think I managed to maintain a certain level of civility. I'm on I've, I've had. Two glasses of wine, and I'm on my third vodka and coke of the evening. Oh, damn! Right. Uh, I- <laughs> you can handle it. Vodka and coke. My cocktails, and I feel like I'm just like chattering right now. <laughs> like, well, no. bear in mind, <laughs> Bond was created by Ian. F- bear in mind, Bond was created by Ian Fleming, who drank God knows how much the guy drank. I mean, you know, just reading the novel Goldfinger, you know, like I'm like intoxicated just reading the first couple of chapters. <laughs> and it's like yeah. in the in the in the in the in the first chapter, he's already had two double bourbons, and he's nursing the third. And yeah. then the one guy comes along. Oh, it's just you know, like you How? you can just feel your blood alcohol go up just reading the passages. Meanwhile, well, we had an the action. actual film. Uh, yeah, yes. we haven't had we haven't had an action we haven't had an action sequence, a prolonged action sequence since the the beginning, really. So here we go. But I, I the thing that I love about going back to the scene that was like I don't know three minutes ago was with Oromov who's ad-libbing like his plan was when things change. And um, I think that's yeah. great that he just mm. kind of makes it up as he's going along. Um, mm, it's fantastic. Yeah. 
I, I love the sense of geography that you get um, in this film as well. You really know where he has been, where he has moved through, how he's got out. Mm. You know, it's a vast, it's a vast kind of Russian complex that he's in, and yet you never feel lost within it. You're tracking Bond yeah. easily through his environment, and you staying with him as um, as the viewer. And I think it's very easy in these in certain Bond films to get very lost in where you are, but you absolutely know where you are um, in this film, and I and I love that about about it. Mm. Um, meanwhile. In this sequence, of course, they have dropped the Eric Serra music and put in John Altman music, yeah, which, of course, goodness. leans heavily on the James Bond theme. <laughs> yeah, because can you imagine um, it's like this? Well, it's... Exactly. <laughs> it's the, original, the, the original Eric Serra is on the soundtrack album. And, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. I'm pretty sure on YouTube, like this scene with uh, Eric Serra music. I think it's on YouTube, or at least it was. And it's just... Yeah. Oh goodness! It's um, yeah, really that's, not the that, same thing. That's right. So, so my, I, I complimented Eric Sarah earlier. So now I'm, I'm taking it back with this sequence. So it's like <laughs> I, I, I understand why they made the substitution when they did, which had to be late in the process. Oh it yeah, was wasn't not, it like a, a, a week before or yeah, something? Yeah, it was a week before. James Altman, knows. Yeah, Altman said in an interview that he knew he'd never get asked back again because he did such a good job, and they said thanks very much. <laughs> Yeah. It's, like, it's one of those. It's one of those film industry things. You came in, saved something, uh, you know, because they made they basically by hiring him to do this. They they were admitting that they made a bad call in the composer, right? Um, yeah. And mm. so he did his job, and that was it, never to return. So I like how uh, when they have that interior shot of Brosnan inside the tank, they light up his eyes. That's a, that's yeah. that's an old technique by cinematographers, yeah. but still works. They did that. They did that uh, in the very beginning when he comes out of the bathroom. Um, That's right. And he steps into that, that letterbox of light. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did have to have a go. So, and, and again, one of, it, yeah. It's some back projection, but I just wanted um, to say there was there was a, there was a thing on YouTube by one of the movie sites where they were comparing how the cinematographer Casino Royale was awesome and the cinematographer of Goldeneye was awful, and I had to point out to them that it was the the what? same cinematographer, the same cinematographer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't comprehend that someone would think. I mean, yeah, obviously it's it's Phil Mayhew, and I, I think the cinematography in both films is pretty fantastic, fantastic. really. Yeah, it's yeah. right. And I do love this, this, this tank scene. And I know some people give it flack and they don't like it. But for me, I love the fact that he is, the way that he's going underneath the tank or in the tank and above the tank, the way that he fixes his tie and is giving us sort of those bondism. Mm. And I think it's important to recognize that Bond is creating a path of destruction. You know, he's destroying infrastructure, not only vehicles, but he's destroying uh, 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 buildings in ways that he doesn't do in other places and other spaces. So when he's in the UK, for instance, uh, in, in the world is not enough, he's maybe like pushing away a table with his little like um, plane boat. boat or whatever it is. Yeah. But he was like literally like just like crushing and destroying um, buildings and infrastructure. So I think it's an interesting scene, but it's very, 
it's a very Bond scene. And for me, I really like Natalia's responses to Bond. Every time he does something sort of really big, you see her through the back of of, of, of the car yeah. sort of smiling. And she <laughs> asks, like... Those guys, get out of that car. I, uh, <laughs> I have, to, have to be pancaked. The, 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 the only issue I have with the sequences is what we talked about and for, for your eyes only yesterday, um, last week, yesterday, last week. Um, Perrier. They, they, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Boom. Um, in Furo's only, they take a lot of Bond stuff away from him to make him more vulnerable. Uh, we talked about in like three or four of the action sequences in that film. Oh. Here, you stick Bond in basically an invulnerable tank. So to mm. me, there's not there's Ooh. no threat to Bond here. The, the threat is he just doesn't catch up with Natalia until it's too late. And that's the only... Um, that's the only threat in here is he's not quite fast enough. Um, yeah. So I don't know. And then of course, you know, in, um, in quantum, they even talked about that in the car chase where they had to like rip the door. Yeah, off right, to make Lisa, it, about to that. Make uh, those reaction shots are great. By, by the way, does Ormoff have any alcohol left in that flask? He's been <laughs> right. pretty hard during this. I, 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 I want the, the general Ormoff bottomless hip flask. Free, free, free refills. Yeah. <laughs> um, just quickly before we finish this sequence, uh, hats off to production designer uh, for, for, Pete Lamont. for doing Peter Lamont thing. magic. You Peter, cannot Peter, tell where the joins are, Peter, can you? Can't tell what's Leavesden and what's what's actually St. Petersburg in that sequence. Yeah. You, you really can't. He's done such an amazing job on it. Um, I think he was fresh off. I don't know whatever the. Um, had he done Titanic at this point? I can't remember. True Lies. He would do it after this. It's True yeah, Lies. It was I mean, True Lies. Oh, it's, it's True Lies. Yeah, that's right. So I, th- I just think his, um, you know, his, his production design, um, he's, he's an interesting man to talk to um, in the sense that, you know, sometimes it's not as exciting as you think it might be. Um, well, he, but- his main difference compared with Ken Adam is that yeah, I mean, he was a draftsman. I mean, he he, yeah. he was all about practical design. Yeah, and but, um, talking last week about like how John Glenn came from being an editor to a director, and so he yeah. had an economy in his work. Pete Lamont coming from a draftsman to a production designer also gives him the economy of his work. I think. In this. Mm. Whereas Ken Adam was just writing like completely batshit crazy sketches and make right. this, you know. But I think this is a beautifully designed film, and all of the environments <laughs> pop in, in their own in their own way. It's not Ken Adam, but this this train is you know this train carriage is fantastic. Um, the BBC's control center uh, right. later on is pretty good. Um, I, I don't know if anyone in the States will get that, but the BBC newsroom is... And this, this is a converted British rail. Oh, there's a reference in the past train um, that they made look like a Soviet missile train. So again, this is like, you got to love yeah. it when the post-war, post-war British stuff echoes Eastern Europe, you know, Eastern Bloc behind the Iron Curtain aesthetics. I think they use that same, the same railway line as they use for Octopus City. Yep. Uh, I could be wrong in saying that, but I think it's the same one because it's something that they can easily control and shoot on. Um, That's right. So, so there's a crossover there. And, a, a and the, there's a combination of, this. there's a combination of model shots and tank shots and model trains and real trains. And unless you yeah, actually and stopped and went shot by you, shot, you wouldn't notice. 
Yeah, that's that lovely. That, the, the great thing about having craftsmen like Derek Meddings and production designer like Peter Lamont on something like this, where you can go easily from models um, to, and you and you can't tell the difference. And it is it, it's it's having the right people. This is a it's a beautifully done sequence. Um, I mean, yes, potentially you can see that that's a model, but you know it's so fleeting. You know, that, I mean, this is all model shots, but it's but it's so well done. And the angles of the camera are, are, are filming it properly to give it scale. Yeah, but doing things like cutting to Bond, jumping out the real size tank, and then cutting to the model, it's, that's that's the illusion that they build, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a, I went to say it earlier, when the, the helicopter lands at Severnaya, that's a combination of... Um, you know, different uh, model shots and force perspective, um, and the, and and like just the landing gear coming down in front of Boris, all to kind of create the illusion that that helicopter was landing in a real location when it isn't. Um, and uh, you know, again, you've got you've got that same situation here. You really believe that that this train has crashed into the tank. Um, this is nice. This is uh, a lovely little kind of way that Alec turns around the situation to kind of be like, no, you think you're in control, but you're not. Um, he, he, you know, it's, it's a nice bit of casting because in a, in a way you can kind of believe that he could almost be a Bond, you know? Um, well, he, he, he did go up for it though, didn't he? Yeah, he did, um, but but that's why I think it's so nice that they they cast him in this particular role because you could kind of you can kind of feel that they are equal in a lot of ways, um, uh, equally skilled, equally matched. So um, Oromov's got a dilemma here now because he needs to hold on to Natalia and his gun, so he has to put his drink down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know and that's probably ruined his aim at this point. Um, I haven't had a even drink a, in even five minutes. <laughs> Do you really think that the roles could have been reversed? That Sean Bean played Bond and Pierce Brosnan pay, played Alex. Yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily think they could have been reversed. So, Lisa, to your point, I don't think that the roles could have necessarily been reversed, but I think um, Bean could have played Bond definitely at a certain point. But wasn't well, there a rumor saying, that Barbara Broccoli wanted him to play Bond that she was not the uh, biggest fan uh, of Pierce Brosnan? Right, and that kind of yeah. When you look back at his tenure now, there's these kind of like things you hear mm-hmm. all lead up to his the way he departs. I think. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Which I was not ready for. I'm going to throw that one out there. I was not happy that he was, I would say, ejected from the role, but that he no longer played the role. I was a little bit bitter about that fact. Just wanted to throw that out. That's my bias. Well, there were a lot of people in that boat at you know in 2004, 2003, right. whenever it was. Uh, now, now, 
you know, sort of like rewriting history. Oh, yeah, it needed a change. He had to go. But like at the time, okay, this movie helped revive the model franchise. Show. And so it's like, okay, this he's the guy who revived the franchise and you're throwing him aside. I mean, you know, that's how it looked from afar. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously any situation is more complicated, but uh, no, it was it was a big shock. At the time. Just want to point. Just want to point out now that we're in 1995, but the train has got internet connectivity. <laughs> so you know, yeah. here we are in 2020, and maybe, maybe it's, it's the intranet <laughs> instead of internet. Look at those, well, look at those I don't plastic, see a, I don't see a sat, I don't see a satellite dish on the train, so I don't know oh, how they're true. getting wireless connectivity. A mm-hmm. uh, little foreshadowing with the pen again, which is nice. I um, love that. Yeah. Um, and. Um, this whole thing, my, my, one of my only real criticisms of this thing is where, um, you know, under pressure, Bond should be trying to come up with a good answer for this, um, this password. It should be more of a riddle. It should be a harder yeah. riddle than chair. And it doesn't yeah, even right. make any sense. Um, yeah. Completely. There is such a thing as folding chairs. Uh, and it, it also bothers me that earlier on when he typed in the password, we could clearly see it was five characters and Natalia is just trying all like four character uh, right. yeah. words, which bothers me a bit. But I, It just, yeah, yeah I, I think it, it would have been a really interesting um, thing to have it. And it's in English as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, David, <laughs> Boris is rebooting his router the same way we, we do today, which is... <laughs> I do. I would say I do like the dynamic here where you get the sense and sometimes my biggest complaint about women in Bond films is like you question like why are they there? Are they along for the ride? And here in this sequence you see that she is the brains of the operation. Bond cannot compute a program and and he's the brawn in the situation. He's going to find a way out and you see them finally coming together in a really cohesive way and that they need each other in order to, you know, overtake uh, the villain and and sort of uh, over overrun this plot. And I like that. I like it, you know, if we're going to have women in the film, at least have them doing something and make it be a substantial role. And I like this dynamic, which I feel in some ways makes its way in a couple of the other films, not, not all of the other Brosnan films. Um, but I like that dynamic and I like the way that it's represented here. The, the romance that suddenly emerges is a little bit of a like, oh, this is happening right now? Why? But um, it's definitely, uh, I like the other part of the connection, the brain and the brawn connection, like you need them together. Mm. Yeah. So we've known each other uh, for about ten minutes, right? Yeah, <laughs> not as not as fast as it was in License to Kill, well, but it's more like two hours. It, you know, all that well, they, train they, they riding actually, and they, stuff. They, no, they, they met on the plane during the night. They, They've been together they for twelve hours. Maybe they don't spend more than five minutes together, though. That's my point. It's like they're in right. the they're in the room. They no, break I, out. They get separated. Point, they meet back on the train. You know, we Meanwhile, have no oh. idea how long that ride from the monument graveyard to the uh, Russian uh, embassy, whatever it is, uh, place true. was. That's I mean, true. Uh, here's the BMW car that uh, the studio wanted in place of uh, the new Aston and, Martin, and driving and along in Puerto car. Rico. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, right. So, so you can you can buy, you can pick up this exact car for about five hundred pounds now. Um, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, and, and this is do. one of those. Th- uh, 
I was just going to say this this little Cessna. It's yeah. often been like, oh, is that Sanchez's Cessna from License to Kill that they caught at the start of the film? No. Well, it's got a different it's got a different tail number for a start. Yeah. So uh, no. Um, but I had mean, this been Felix, you see, then it would have made a bit more sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, oh, Jimbo. Bond has got his um, <laughs> his, his his License to Kill suit on. Right. Not that I said, yeah, uh, living daylight suit on. It's you know, oh. um, you know that kind of uh, tan, tan and white shirt. I think, mm. uh, I think, I think Brosnan wears it better. <laughs> mm. And we're going to talk that. a little bit about the uh, magical white bikini that comes out of nowhere. And I always bring up white bikinis. I mean, come on, it's completely impractical. Who wears a white bikini bathing suit? But magically it appears and Natalia rocks it. And maybe there's some allusions here to Honey Rider and that type of, of, of connection and moment. So I get it, like the iconographic connection. I just mm. feel as though it's so incredibly impractical and I would never wear a white bathing suit. So just wanted to throw that <laughs> out there. You know, as the woman on the panel, it's unrealistic. Right. To me that that's you know you just right. randomly if i look at all my bathing suits none of them are white and maybe you're lucky if they have like a splash of white on them well meanwhile yeah. in the uh, inspector did bond really have enough room in his luggage for his white tux right. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed to appear out of nowhere as well Magically. <laughs> it was rolled so- up really tight <laughs> that's why he asked for it to be pressed <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there were some yeah. wrinkles. I said, dude, I had to roll this thing up to get in my carry-on bags. Can you get the wrinkles out? Really bothers me that we didn't even get sort of like just an even an off-screen gag with Wade accidentally activating right. the stinger missiles or something. Like, at least do that. Like you can't Wait. set up something like that and not have it matter at all. Just just have the car blow up because he's like at the end, he's like practically an afterthought. Like just yeah. have the car blow up as it drives away. I told yeah. him, I told him not to press that button, but did he listen? No. Yeah. What a beautiful, beautiful shot that is. Um, yeah, picture, picture postcard. Mm. Um, even though you know that they spent forever kind of cleaning that beach up, waiting for it too, yeah. wait, waiting mm. for it to get that moment. Crotch shot as well, which is totally unnecessary. Um, yep. <laughs> and and the way they framed it is, it's like she puts his crotch, her crotch, into his face, and he kind of looks contemplative. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> like, who who could this be? <laughs> oh dear! There's a, there's a, there's a there's a melt. There's a slow crossfade coming out when they when they go to the, from here to the bedroom, yeah. where the, the 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 two shots it takes like four three seconds for it to crossfade. In the um, <laughs> it feels yeah. like that. In in the online versions of this on Apple and Amazon and stuff, they've actually cut it. Oh, oh really? Yeah. yeah. I, d- I can only imagine it's because the way that it crossfades like Rex encoders, but um, it's diff- but I don't know whether they why they took it out, but it, it's gone. Hmm. Um, I'm not a big fan of kind of wipes and crossfades and all these kinds of things, um, but I mean, there is a crossfade earlier when they go down from Severn Eyes surface to under underground, which is okay. Because I kind of think that tells the story of of, of the movement of where we're gives you a better idea of, of kind of geography, but that's just a kind of a weird transition there. You don't need to do that. You can cut. You so can I'm cut assuming that's the flames of passion 
that we're getting. A long pan as well, you know, like a long kind of like, oh, let me just go, uh, and then a bit of, a bit of furry nipple. We didn't mention it earlier on, but there is a great cut when uh, Xenia is uh, sort of asphyxiating the uh, Canadian um, admiral guy. And just as she's going, yes, yes, the cut is to sort of like a motorboat, like frothing up the water. Yeah, um, right. oh, that's it, right. It, it's, uh, yeah, if you listen to the audio commentary, I think Martin Campbell is like very proud of that. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, in this sequence, uh, Brosnan wishes to establish I, that he has more chest hair than Connery has. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to have a hairy bond. It's been a while at this point. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he really is very hairy. Um, <laughs> mm. This is actually so is, so is amazing, bit of, well. amazing bit of flying here. Genuinely, this, like, I know this is just a little cut in and it doesn't really mean very much to people, but that is, a, right. that is just an amazing that's actually bit of flying. A, that's actually a stunt. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It- that's, it is, and it's just, probably one of those things. It was probably delegated to a second unit director, and said, "Well, if you, you know, I can see Campbell saying, well, if you got something good, will you put it in the movie?'" And then the guy said, "All right, I'll, I'll show you." And then it's an incredible. It's so good he has to put it in the movie. Um, but it's sort of one of those kind of blink and miss it and not really think about it stunts. You know, like it really genuinely is like skim the water and pull up like that. Well. Um, I, I I think this this is very redolent, obviously, of uh, you only live twice, and I'm, I'm, that's clearly what they were trying to um, mirror uh, yes. with this. And it's part of that whole pastiche that I was talking about earlier with the, in, in the titles, you know, where they try to bring in these these elements, these flavors. So it's kind of got this familiarity, but also being new and different. But that's a that's a typical twice shot there, and the model shot, yeah. I think. Um, right. Mm. Sting of missiles <laughs> through the through the wing again. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they could have just let him pass, and then yeah. they would have presumably got away with it. But uh, yeah. no, maybe it's an automatic uh, defense mechanism or or something. Uh, yeah, you, you don't imagine that Sean Bean is is there going, ah, shoot him down. Yeah. And then we go uh, to your point about the lighting of yours in last the, week. The, the jungle level. That's right. Mm. And is, um, so here we are on the jungle level where you can't see through the smoke. Every <laughs> tropical, every <laughs> tropical plant within fifty miles of Pinewood was wheeled in for this one. <laughs> yeah. But I also think I it's l- a little bit sad that Zenya on a top is gone at this point. Like mm. she's this, this she is the physical foe. Um, that that bond has come up on again and again, and I think it's interesting. I think I think it's interesting. Like Bond's license to kill, which has typically been employed to kill men, has sort of been in a sense lifted or expanded, and he does kill Zenya on a top in a way that reflects her threat on him and on men in general. So the tree behind her looks like a pair of legs. I just think it's a shame that she's gone before like the big climax of the film. Um, well, it's akin to a thunderball with Fiona mm-hmm. getting it about three quarters of the way through the movie, right. and then, yeah, I mean, I mean, once she goes, you know, you can sort of feel the energy, some of the energy of the movie depart. Right. Yeah. This is this is nice shots though, the way that they kind of got like, in. I love it. Yeah. 
Uh, Bond's kind of half awake, semi gormless yeah. look up into the sky. Yeah, and are like sort of ready to attack. Mm. Just to sort of compare this to the game as well, we've made a few references to it so far, but um, in the game, Xenia is probably the most difficult character uh, yeah. to kill, to come up against. You you get in a yeah. sort of a proper uh, shooting uh, match with her. Uh, oh, yeah, and... she's she's not easy to take down. You've got to keep blasting yeah. her. Face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Extended pain face. There you see the veins and everything. Mm. Uh, you, um, Lisa, you asked who was responsible for that earlier. I think it's uh, her name is Maddie Bauer. Um, yeah. She uh, she coined pain face. Mm. And, and the headbutt. Oh, the headbutt. But mm. I also think it's interesting that what Zenya says is, you know, it's your turn as well. And I think that there is a nod here to the fact that she will get sexual pleasure, not just from defeating men in her world, but yeah. that she would get sexual pleasure from doing it as well. And it isn't a question to open up, you know, what it was the perspective, say, of bisexuality um, or homosexuality or lesbianism in the 1990s. And is it still being linked in some way, shape or form uh, uh, to villainy? We also have this trope of hypersexualizing um, people and specifically women who are bisexual. And that seems to be just like this ongoing trope as well. So I think it's just, it's an interesting point that is sort of like it's there, but I'm not really sure what to do with it because it's quickly, we quickly move, move on from it because she dies. And well, then there's no need to discuss it after that. It's uh, it's basically kind of put out there to um, uh, kind of entice the audience, and but then it's not dealt with in any kind of comprehensive way. They just move out. Coming up here is a uh, uh, we're not there yet. We're going to see a bunch of uh, uh, computer screens once we get inside the headquarters, and there's like an inside joke when uh, Trevelyan reveals his plot and he's like uh, electronically stealing all this money out of London before he detonates Goldeneye, uh, you actually see a reference to uh, Pevsner something or other. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is a reference to Tom Pevsner, who has the title of executive producer in this movie. And he had joined the crew starting in 1981. And this was his final Bond appearance. There's a number of final Bond appearances Obviously, beginning with uh, Albert R. Broccoli, but also Derek Meddings, who passed away after this was made. Sid Kane, I believe this was his last movie. He he worked yes. on some of the storyboards. He gets a credit he in the end titles. Yeah, he, he, uh, Sid Kane helped design the satellite and stuff too. And yeah. um, Pevsner passed away, obviously, before Spectre, which is why Q in Spectre says we're staying at Pevsner Hotel. Oh, right. So this is a reversed model shot where they drain the water. They push the water in, but they reverse the film to make it look like it's draining out. Like it's draining out, yeah. Um, it's a really they couldn't get the scale great. of the water to look right. Yeah, and that's the trouble with, with models of water generally. Um, it was interesting they did a shot a, a moment ago where you see Bond and Natalia walking towards the dish as it's coming out of the water. Obviously that's a... Uh, Combination of model and live action, but it's again, it's done so beautifully that you don't think for a second that they're not actually actually there. It's um, it's very well done. Right. This is and for anybody, and anybody who's got like a garden pond or a garden fountain and has to clean it, um, <laughs> it's amazing. There's no like algae seaweed yeah. or anything <laughs> in this thing. Mm. They must have they did a do some miniature, miniature algae. Uh, for it, but it did te test well. 
Can I just um, give a shout out to Trevelyan's uh, like staff in this thing? Like, not the, uh, the, the the gunman, but the computer workers. Like, they're not like you know. We see so often Bond villains have these uniformed staff. They're often like you know young to middle aged men. Here, Trevelyan has like if you went into most offices in summer, right. you would probably find people looking like He's this. An it's e- like equal all... opportunity employer. Yeah, no, quite. <laughs> Like a spectrum, and you just see like these perfectly pleasant-looking people wandering around with uh, <laughs> files and sheets of paper and things. And it's oh, they I... answer they answer to one ad, you know. It's like oh, <laughs> yeah. that looks good. Oh, the benefits are excellent. I'm going to no. apply for this job. There's, a, there's, the a, there's, a, good, there's a good question here: is, is is to whether they understand that the the people who their opposite numbers in Severnaya were murdered. They, uh, they understand that the check's clear. That's what they understand. <laughs> and they get but to they, live on this fantastic um, island for uh, yeah. a good few months. You know, it's, are, it's, it's, it's in, like Crater Guy and you only live twice. It's a good living. You open the open the crater, close the crater, pays good. But, but one, but one wonders when, when he actually turned up and said, hey, by the way, guys, you're now working for me. Because there, there would have been a point where these guys are working for the Russians, right? This is yep. a Russian surveillance station. These yep. guys just turned up and went, Okay, this is oh, what's the happening. Soviet Union had gone out of business. So it's like, oh, someone's coming along. It's going to pay us. Great, I'm right there. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> um, also, one of the one of the guys that holds up um, Bond in a few minutes um, is also the same guy that held him against Gary Powell. the Gary Powell, the same guy that held him against the, the frigate. Um, mm. So he's yeah. he's he's tr- he's transferred from the French Navy. Um, right. And later he's sailing a nuclear submarine in the water sign off as well. Yeah. <laughs> now, see, um, that, but that goes back to how people now expect if you appear once in a series, whether it's a film series or TV series, you can never play another part again. It used to be with a film series or TV series. It's like a play. Each installment's like a play. They come in, they come out, and they, you know. I blame they... I blame Marvel, Bill, for continuity. <laughs> I've uh, Bill. I've been watching a lot of Columbo recently, and all I can say is there is uh, a lot of uh, familiar faces <laughs> in every episode. Well, especially the one where uh, he goes to London. It's like every. Every British expat working in Hollywood is in that <laughs> episode. I mean, anyway, not going to talk about that anymore. But just um, David, just if, you, if, you, if, if your connection's working again, David, tell us about your trip to um, the Dish because you actually went there. I did. If you can hear me, ah. yep, we can um, hear you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, back in two thousand and five, uh, my wife, who wasn't my wife then, but. Um, you know, um, she she she, is she was out sealed, in. Is that how you sealed it? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't exactly go that way, um, but she she um, she was teaching at um, the University of Puerto Rico for I don't know a couple of months or something. So I, I managed to get out there for six weeks or something like that, and um, weekends we uh, toured the island and the the islands off. Puerto Rico, and uh, one of the excursions we did was to the west of the island, and on the way, uh, we went to the Arecibo uh, um, radio telescope, which is where the some of this filming took place, because the yeah. the actual dish is Arecibo, and uh, yeah. it, it's been damaged a couple of times since... They'd, they'd actually modified it when I saw it from 
the shooting that that, that added some extra sensors and so it looks slightly different the the, the dish is still exactly the same but the the sensors uh right. on the kind of crane above are, are slightly different from what you see in the film uh hmm. but uh it the you drive on this 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 winding 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 road um and you know the the shots of the plane flying over there it, it it's uh it, it looks very, very much like that, but um, uh, you've got this kind of narrow road perched high in these hills, and so you, you get pretty much the same view. Uh, it's mm. it, it's quite amazing to visit. Very, very uh, mm. good. Yeah. Mm. You'll have to post some photos on Twitter. Dig them out. Mm, yeah. Yes. Uh, I I think my photos are actually on your website, James. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, I, I I will do. Probably they're not. They're probably they're they're lower resolution than than we can post now, though. But I I, I yeah. will take a look. At, they are somewhere. So I just want to mention the sequence here where Sean Bean, sorry, 006 is doing his thing. This is really the first time the cinema audiences got Bond's backstory mm. about his parents dying mm-hmm. in a climate accident. Blah 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 blah. And of course now, of course. Everybody grown up the Craig era. This is kind of like taken for granted, but I mean, this was thirty plus years into this series before we actually got his backstory. Hmm. And I like the idea of Bond having a villain again. I, I always bring up my love for Scaramanga, but I love their dynamic because it's you know two of them kind of similar in age, but they go on different paths for different reasons. And I think this is probably the first time that we really get a sense of Bond's past his history the fact that they both have traumatic histories and yet Mm. they took different turns for different reasons and they're relatively the same age and so it is personal for bond it's personal for trevelyan or whatever his name is um and it's it's a personal exchange between the two of them and i like it when i mean as much as i critique the most recent craig era because everything's personal and everything's a little too personal which is why i didn't like specter because it's like oh my goodness not everything has to be like a personal affront to bond for him you know to move into action i like the Mm. beginning of this where there's a personal stake and that's a little bit different there's a personal stake in bond doing what he's doing and that there's repercussions for him being good and that there's repercussions if he was to go bad to reinforce your point, Lisa, I believe this is the first film that mentioned that Bond was an orphan. I think so. Uh, which yeah, is, that's which what of I mean. course, which is yeah. of course in the book, specifically in the obituary chapter of "You Only Live Twice," but yeah. had never been broached in the films until this one. Yeah, and of course, Kiss Campbell comes back for Casino, and then we have the same kind of "Well, you're an orphan too" speech in the train, mm. with but mm. this time with Vesper and not the villain. Mm. One of the so. interesting things I think, and I mentioned this earlier, is that um, Boris is one of the great villains because he doesn't think he's a villain. And, yeah. mm. you know, when, when he meets Natalia, he's like, oh, Natalia, it's good to see you. It's like, don't you realize <laughs> that you're actually on the, on the wrong team? Um, and he thinks it's also kind of more necessary for, for the plan than he, he is. I think he's a really interesting character and he's played, he's played very well. Um, mm-hmm. Also in this, you know, the way that uh, Campbell cuts between reaction shots, uh, you know, with, um, with with Bond looking at the pen. And this exchange yeah. is also great. Yeah. 
Um, well, this is a great yeah. scene because it's just layer on top of layer. It's it, it's really suspenseful and it all kind of builds to the big explosion, obviously. But it's um, it, it, yeah, no, I think it's it's so well edited, uh, director shot. It's a fantastic sequence. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and the that one coming really friend. works at pen. Yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's like really nimble with his hands. And I like, learned oh. how to do this when I was ten years old because of this film, this like pen twiddling thing. I would do it in school. I was really pleased with myself doing it with my Parker oh, oh, pen. And the, drop, geography. the drop is great. Look at that. And then he picks it up again. Oh, it's um, lovely. And then this where he's like, Oh yep, no, it's gonna blow any second now. <laughs> Yep, get rid of it. And conveniently, it lands in the explosive (laughs) next to the next to the uh, container explodium. Thankfully, Uh, villains villains have to get explodium for their lairs. One didn't count Um, correctly, and the pen doesn't go off, and then he gets shot, and that's the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Do one of those edits on YouTube. Um, I love the, the the little mines as well. Um, for for those who are interested, they are actually made out of joint. The bottom oh, man, the stunt team goes crazy in this sequence, don't they? Mm. They're made out of what? Oh, man? Yeah. Made out of like little joysticks. Um, you know, the um, bottom of a joystick. Yeah. The, the bottom of a joystick. Um, I, it took me ages to to, to work that out. Um, anyway, um, and they they always- reused this little scene here for the PlayStation. No, so the N64 TV commercial. No, there was a PlayStation commercial. Do you know how to use one of these? Wasn't it? Oh, oh, and Natalia he, he just hands, does. Sorry. Hands of the controller. Yeah. I'm about to say, Natalia does the same trick that, uh, what's her name, does Inspector. Oh, you can do yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it would kind of be standard training for them, though. So, to be fair. Yeah, it's also- it follows my argument that Madeline Swan is basically just a composite of all other Bond girls that came before her. And so I feel as though they literally cherry pick like storylines and elements from all these other women. And this to me, I always bring up Natalia as being one of the components, but this is a direct, I think, influence yeah. into her depiction. Hmm. Um, if she didn't see that helicopter, the whole end of this movie wouldn't happen. At least she doesn't yell, James, James. Yeah, uh, that is true. What well, we could like, have been like, watching, people. It's like we could have been watching people. Goldfinger if people listened to me. <laughs> I won't. Not that I'm bitter or anything. I have to say, this is a very long, extended um, kind of fight between these two, but it works. So well, and, and particularly when they get inside the, the cradle um, workshop itself. Well, well they're I trying to go for a, a more elaborate Bond Grant fight from, from Russia with Love in a you know, not as a confined space as a train component, well, but it, it also um, de escalates. So it starts off with AK 47s, then it goes to pistols, then it goes to chains, and then it goes to fists. Hand to hand combat. Yeah. 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 Is that you're right? That's yeah, that's really well done, it, actually. It gets more personal with each yeah. um, transition, and, it, and this is how Bond defeats the bad guy right now. He defeats the entire plan with, with a, a pole, piece of metal. yeah, with a yeah. pole, um, which <laughs> is super, it's super low tech. Um, is, you know, if this if this was like an RPG game in the eighties, it was like, did you pick up the metal pole? No, you failed. Look, look, he's he's an afterthought. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, like I might I might as well do that now. Yeah, I'll just do that. 
Like, and that's the whole, that saves the whole movie. Right. <laughs> um, also in terms of geography, I just want to say that we've had a really sense, we've had a really great sense of geography uh, where, where Bond has been before. Martin Campbell is direct, that is deliberately making the environment maze-like here and confusing to, to throw us into this sort of sense of confusion on, on the cradle. It, it kind of makes it seem a lot more complicated and difficult to, to, to kind right. of maneuver around than it actually is. Mm. But by the way, just a quick stray thought. Did, Jan, did the Janus organization really fund all this through vice gambling, all that stuff right. in Russia? <laughs> well, they, they only had to take over the existing facility. They didn't have to build it. Okay. Exactly. Right. Um, so it's probably just, they probably just paid the higher they up. Bought it. Yeah. Well, and to they, that point, Aramov's on the scheme, right? So, yeah. I mean, he so, would have been the one so, that so, gave him the keys to the place. Yeah, no, this, this is a very good fight. I'm, you know, it's when, amazing. I think this is yeah. better than better than a lot of the um, kind of the born fights that everyone sort of said was super realistic. Uh, I actually just I really feel that they're they're invested in this. There's 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 personal stakes involved here, and and it's gritty and it's real. And a bit where like that gun goes off and it's dragged across the table, and you hear the sound of the chain. It's really, it's really great. And then this moment where he, he gets the drop on Bond, it's like, oh my God, he really is better than James Bond. He really is better right. than Batman 7. And, and then, then we that- go straight Star Wars. Like, I mean, I can't see the end of of this movie without thinking about like Star Wars, Luke Skywalker hanging off of whatever he hangs off of um, at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. And I also have questions right. about like, like shooting at each other like how do you miss through like a like a a wire fence that has these big gaps you're telling me with the machine gun like you're not going to hit any of the holes and so that reminds me a little bit of like sort of stormtroopers and i just get a lot of like star wars vibes from this end part that i mean it makes for interesting familial conflict but yeah well i think to be fair they were using they were using the location they had yeah. Um, I think it's more kind of, I don't think they set out to, I, I get your point. I it just don't think it, they yeah. set out to it. Yeah. And and of course, this, this bit here, this bit here was shot horizontally on green screen. So yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So um, they look like they're hanging out, but they're actually on wires sideways. Right. So, which is actually an old technique pre uh, computer effects. It's now mm. it's easier to do, but it's like uh, North by Northwest when, uh, uh, Eva Marie Saint is supposedly hanging. I mean, she's mm-hmm. laying horizontally. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, but, you know, you don't, you can't tell it watching the film and you can't really tell it here unless you've seen the stills of, you know, what it was like. Yeah. The green you know. screen stills. Um, the fact that they're fighting on, on what it amounts to be, you know, like three or four feet worth of, uh, um, steel is, you know, it's, it, it really brings attention up. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, if Natalia hadn't seen that helicopter, hmm. Trevelyan would, would beat Bond at this point. Um, he's got the upper well, hand. A, a, and, and Bond had no way off it before it fell down yeah. either. So no. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, real quick, um, on a subsequent showing, I took my uh, daughter and my niece to see it, and they wanted to go off sit by themselves, and that was fine. So when I was driving them home, they were like um, reciting lines from the movie. They kept talking about the access codes, the access codes. <laughs> right. It was it was a fun drive home. 
Oh, here we go. And that he didn't that he didn't fall through the helicopter blades. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he doesn't pop like a a, a water or balloon. Land point. in the pit that's directly below. Yeah. Mm. You, you find alive. Yeah, no, I love yeah. that he's still alive. I love that it, it's that extra double whammy of, you know, his thing is going to fall on him, his base. It's it, it's quite well, it, good, well, I think, I, satisfying. I and also it's, it does give Bond an out. It's like, yeah, he hurt him really severely, but he wasn't the guy who killed him. It was the crumbling base <laughs> that killed him. So. Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think he's dead. Like at this point, I think <laughs> he's no matter going to survive. Yeah, yeah but, but it's just but, the extra sort of yeah punch of cinematic a, justice. There's a whole bunch a of gasoline in there, as they say. Mm, quite yeah. right. Well, I think yeah. it. I think it. I think it plays to the idea and that here's the falling know, cross again. There it is. That's oh. The double O's are sort of indestructible. You know, that's the yeah. kind of like oh, he's yeah. at that. Yeah, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, you're dead. Um. <laughs> when I first came across this cross motif, I was wondering if it was more a case of a St. George's cross that they were picking up uh, because it was George yeah, and the Dragon right. and all the rest of yeah. it and the British and the English. But anyway. Um, and, and we forgot Boris, about Boris, didn't we? <laughs> Boris gets his coup d'etat as well, liquid oxygen you see if this was whatever. mark forster be like well i wanted to use fire and ice and <laughs> <laughs> yes yes uh, and meanwhile but meanwhile this helicopter pilot well oh, he's well, still I'm, out there isn't he I'm, yeah i'm he's still a out there. survivor so i'm gonna go and apply for a new job now <laughs> 20 years from now 20 years from now he'll be a supreme villain who wants to take Bond down? Mr. Bond, you forgot me, but I'm the guy who was in the helicopter. But I'm getting my revenge now. Um, yeah, this this sort of plays on the idea that, um, you know, the, the old Bond films where you would have, like, a, a fight between, like, all the, all the Bonds kind of Marines and all of the, you know, the Janus guys. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, we didn't get that far. <laughs> we kind of like ten minutes later. That's what you would right. have got. <laughs> hmm. Oh, tobacco plants! I'm yeah. going to mention the thing that was cut out of my character. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could have saved you, Bond, but uh, if you and really helicopter- needed help, we would have been there. Silent helicopters appearing out of nowhere, just like in Skyfall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They totally oh, can jump on top of these guys too, and they're just randomly jumping out of the helicopter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, and, and when they and when they were walking, they just happened to hit all the spaces in between them. Right. <laughs> yeah. I do really like this ending, considering like the next three Brosnans all end in that sort of classic Bond way of you know him yeah. you know in bed or on a raft or whatever with his female co-star um, about to you know get Do jiggy with it and yeah exactly here it's like oh i, I kind of like that they just go off screen laughing together it feels more like they're a an actual couple than, right. yeah um, I, I agree calvin it's a nicer ending isn't it it's okay yeah i i got i got a way to improve it here we go that might actually be better than the experience of love, which is yeah. uh, Eric Sarah. Yes. Can you if, believe if it, the, the just the audacity right. of like I'm going to sing the end title song for this? <laughs> if, like, oh, if this God. is if, if this is the experience of love, then I'm out. 
Oh, oh, and here we have to the memory of Derek Metting. So yeah. when this came out, I was wondering, are they going to mention the other guys who died? But like, no, they didn't. But they did mention, you know, because it just happened. In, uh, yeah, it just Derek happened. Metting's and he actually well, worked on the film. So. Right. He actually worked on the film, yeah. yeah. So it's mm. like... Um, yeah, it's. I just uh, noticed I mean, there's somebody in the credits called Natalia Smirnova. I mean, that's pretty close. The location yeah. manager. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to all the production oh, crews. Legal services, David Pope, the beloved to many James Bond fans. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. When you see his signature on a letter, you know it's not good news. No. <laughs> oh, and somewhere, somewhere here we get uh, Sid Kane's uh, credit as well for the storyboards. The last Bond film edited on film. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Oh. Storyboard artist Martin Ashbery, Sid Kane. Oh yeah. yeah. So and like, is Ron Quilt still alive? He goes all the way back to Doctor No. Mm. Production buyer. Hmm. Um, I I, I got to say, I, I um, just I meant to mention this earlier on, um, but it's interesting that this this is this is one of those Bond films that I I feel like everybody kind of likes um mm. i mean i know i know that, that, that obviously there were a few votes against it um but uh, and I've, I've probably told this story before and if i have i apologize but i remember i had a meeting of a lot of bond fans at my, my house once and we were all trying to decide which of the films we were going to watch and we went through this this arduous process of elimination and and it came down to the only one that we would agree to all watch together was goldmine and I think that that's, that is stuck in my mind as the, the, the golden eye is the film that, like, if you want to bring somebody in and just get everyone to agree on, or, or you, if you want to introduce somebody to Bond and they haven't seen Bond before, it's got all of the elements. And it kind of satisfies sort of everybody, apart from the music, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I think it's got... I think it's got because it's this this pastiche of, of, of all of these classic kind of Bond things. It's got a bit of Sean Connery. It's got a bit of Roger Moore. Um, it's all Pierce Brosnan, and it's a bit more polished than say some of the 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 eighties Bonds. Um, it feels like one of the first kind of Bond blockbusters, so to speak, um, of, uh, of modern Bonds. But I think it's one of those ones that people will all enjoy. Yeah, I I, I quite agree. I echo everything you just said and um yeah no, i know there were quite a few votes against it i don't know if it's due its backlash like if it's you know so beloved and um, held in uh, high esteem that it's due some sort of postmodern critique around about now it's 25th anniversary but it's it's one of my favorites has always been one of my favorites i think it's uh an endlessly entertaining experience watching this i've really enjoyed watching it with all of you guys and um it's uh i i i just i i love this film and i think it just it has an identity outside of the bond series as well that i kind of love i even feel like with the next three brosnans Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite fit in with those stylistically um and it, it does just have its own thing going whether it's the game or whatever its own unique look its own unique style but i think it is a it's a wonderful film well, and and just to repeat something I said earlier, it's like going into this, like a lot of Bond fans say, oh, Bond will go on forever. It's no question. There were a lot of questions as this movie was beginning production. What, you know, there'd been the, the long hiatus. Was Bond out of date? Can it be, you know, can it be revived? 
And it was, and it, and it was because of this film and mm -hmm. whatever quibbles you have about individual elements, individual scenes, whatever, it was, it was a big hit and was, there was no question Bond would go on after all, but it was not a sure thing going into production, not at all. Right. And, and fans don't appreciate that. And so, and it's pretty well known secret. I make some jokes at Michael G. Wilson's expense. Uh, but it, it, the, the, but the fact that, that he and Barbara Broccoli have kept it going is an accomplishment. I, w I would not deny that for a moment. Right. And whatever agreements, disagreements you have, um, like I said, not, this was, was the first. Not without missteps, right? Not without right. missteps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and as we were talking about earlier about casting that thankfully didn't happen because the film might not be as good if it had happened mm -hmm. uh, in, in a lot of ways. They got lucky in that regard. Um, mm. But whatever, it, it fell into place and the series was assured of continuing. So I'm going to posit a um, hypothesis out there and see what you think because I've been thinking about this since the voting closed. Goldeneye came out in 95. Goldfinger was 31 years old at that point. Right, yeah, and I think if you'd have polled Bond fans in um, '95, the best James Bond film, Goldfinger. I mean, popular culture, it would have just been Goldfinger all day long, right? Not, not even in doubt. Twenty twenty, Goldeneye is now twenty five years old, so within you know mm. it's within touching distance of the same age, right? Yeah, mm. and I think Goldeneye now takes that mantle for a lot of fans that it's the everybody likes it touchstone movie now is taken over from goldfinger true i think there's also this element that that we, we we've touched on briefly through the, the commentary which is that the there was an entire kind of generation of gamers that were kind of born through uh, the n64 game as well yep and, and, were, and were brought into the bond fold so to speak through the game um, I, I think what what it represents, because of the time it was it was put out, because of the game itself as well, it's a, it's a it's an entirely kind of new um, it's it's for a new generation. It's for a different generation of, of um, Bond fans, and I think that that's, that that they don't have that same connection to something like Goldfinger because right. they didn't see it in the cinema or whatever. <laughs> well, and well, and also remember there was a GoldenEye reissue a computer game where they well, put Craig in, yeah, yeah where they put Daniel Craig in. It's like what? Whoa! Time that's out. what I mean. That's what I mean. That's what I mean about GoldenEye. Is like the new Touchstone movie, the new Touchstone yeah. property that Goldfinger held for decades. I think GoldenEye, as time marches on, is going to get stronger in that regard, and Goldfinger is yeah. going to fade a little bit. I, I've what got think, to David? say, uh, I, I, I don't quite get it. For, for me, I, I don't love it and I don't hate it. And uh, it's a film that uh, I, w I was happy that Bond was back on the big screen back in, in 95 because I, I certainly uh, thought for a few years that Bond was over. And so to have Bond back... It, uh, was a great thing and uh, and I kind of I, I do like Pierce Brosnan as Bond but um, I, I and, oh, yeah, and actually uh, something that I think Ben was touching on as well that um, 
it, I, I also understand that it, it introduced a, a huge new audience to Bond. Uh, there was that break, and so that was to be expected. Plus, the, there was the computer game. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of younger fans came on board um, either directly with the film or via the the computer game. And uh, uh, and and so you know that, that for, for Bond, that that's a great thing. But uh, for me, it, it's a very middling film. Uh, I, I I just. Yeah, I, it, it's it's one that I've uh, I've seen far too many times uh, over the years, and uh, we, we've talked about that with, with Goldfinger about you know how how many more times can you watch Goldfinger? And uh, well, no, I reckon I, I've got quite a few more. I've got quite a few more uh, Goldfinger viewings in me. If I'm <laughs> if I'm going to compare it with with with, with Goldeneye, uh, you know. It, uh, it, it it just it just doesn't hold me, and it, 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 I, I think a lot of it's for, for me it is over the top. Um, at, at the beginning of the film, Ben, you, you were talking about some of the stunt work and, and so on, saying how how uh, Bond it was for you, but for, for me that isn't really Bond. That it's just too it pushes it too much into kind of generic action film and. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, David, can I ask a question? Would it, do you think it'd be fair to say that the historical importance of GoldenEye outweighs uh, the merits of the film itself? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the perfect way of saying it, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, I'm the oldest one here, so, like, I was an adult when that six year gap happened and you didn't have the internet in those days. So it was really hard to follow it day to day, but you could follow it the general direction. And, you know, in the early nineties, Dan Jack put itself up for sale. I mean, people forget that, but they sure. did. And, you know, I mean, it was definitely not a sure thing that bond was going to continue. And there was the long protracted legal fight between uh, Dan Jack slash Eon and MGM, which we won't go into here. And so, and they settled it, I think around 93. So like, so at that point it had been four years since the last film. And so just, so at that point it was just now possible that development on a movie might actually begin, but then it was like, you know, what are they going to do? Who's going to be Bond? And that was a soap opera unto itself. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, Bond fans say, oh, James Bond will go on forever. And, you know, granted the way studios keep picking at uh, <laughs> intellectual property, maybe so in one way or another, but trust me, in that 89 to 95 period there were there were there was a lot of uncertainty and uh oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, 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 by, by the way just just uh, something bill you say you, you were you were an you were an adult in those years i, I was too yeah you you and i are like the ones who can say that <laughs> in, in this group uh for sure i was in my my uh, mid-20s so i think it's okay okay there that. you go all right <laughs> um so I, I, I will say, say this as well, um, particularly in the UK, uh, there was a bit of a, bit of a, a, a kind of a cultural change as well, which uh, I think helped the, the film um, 
which I think you have to kind of take into consideration when you are discussing GoldenEye and why it's so successful, why it was successful in bringing Bond back at the time. Uh, you had Britpop as a movement, um, and you had New Labour uh, as well. Um, yeah. So we had a change of government uh, after so long of, of, of conservatism. Um, Margaret Thatcher and then fairly grey years of, of John Major. And then we got into new, uh, and we had sort of Americanized kind of pop or, or rock. And finally, it felt like we were taking back a lot of um, what it meant to be British. Um, and so there was this rejuvenation of kind of uh, like Cool Britannia, they called it. And so for, for Bond to come out in 95, it was. It was very yeah, much that, 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 that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like it was almost like the Skyfall kind of the Skyfall Olympics kind of overlap too, right? Man, I mean, it's 100%, like hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the jubilee of, of twenty twelve. Uh, you know, you had the they had the Union Jack bunting down the street. That was very much a contributory factor to how how Skyfall was received, but it's the same thing with, with GoldenEye. I mean, what what Ripkop was, was a pastiche of kind of 1960s uh, pop music. And in a sense, that's what, what Bond was doing with GoldenEye, was kind of this this uh, this kind of um, rejuvenation of uh, old kind of things. But, but Body pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, I think it, it, that's exactly what GoldenEye is to me. It's the Britpop of Bond. Also, um, again, just going back to that period, um, you know, one of the criticisms or one of the uncertainties was, well, Bond, the Cold War is over. Is Bond still relevant? That's very ironic considering now, today in 2020, the Soviet Union has been put back together in all but name. And like, you know, it's like, and all that, you know, uh, capitalism that was going on in the 90s in Russia, well, pretty much you're only allowed to be a capitalist if you're a friend of Vladimir Putin. And that's just, that's, and that's not an opinion. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've, we've kind of come full circle in terms of the West versus Russia. And um, yeah, I mean, so. So in that regard, Bond is as relevant now as it ever was. So, And I also think the film does a good job of updating the gender politics. For me, the women who come out in the 2000s, um, especially the female heroes in the 2000s, are a lot, at least in my opinion and the way I've argued it, seem to be a little bit more action-oriented, a lot more empowered. There's less putting them down. Now you might have casting issues such as Denise Richards, um, but like the overall goal is to provide Bond with still str- like strong, empowered co-heroes for the most part across the Boston era. And so for me, I see a huge shift by having Samantha Bond, you know, no longer simply being a secretary, but she's now more of an administrative assistant. Having Judy Dench step into the role as Bond's boss, having women seem to be playing 
uh, very central and action oriented uh, roles. You have Natalia Simonova has her own scenes in this, and that takes it a step forward in the next film, Tomorrow Never Dies, with Michelle Yeoh yeah. as Wei Lin, who has her own action sequence. So for me, this is like the start of a very interesting pivot towards more action hero oriented. Uh, women in the Bond franchise, which coincides with the rise of action women in Hollywood in a broader sense, in a more consistent, broader sense. And while Hollywood's trying to figure out what do we do with these women? How do we represent these women? I think the Bond film does a pretty good job with trying to highlight different women and, and, and having them being plugged in in different types of way ways within the Bond universe in the Brosden era. And it changes again and shifts again by the time we hit the Craig era. There's a lot there to talk about too. Yeah. Uh, so I just, in terms of my point of view, there's, there's there's just a lot here when it comes to women and reoriented, or maybe even calibrating the world of of Bond in a different era. Geopolitics shift, sure. Uh, different filmmaking techniques, sure. But for me, it's always I'm always attentive to the way that women are being uh, represented, and maybe that's the influence of post feminism coming in. This idea that you know feminism is over, women are equitable. Uh, to men and women can embrace their sexuality and that they shouldn't be judged for their sexuality, even though in reality, women still are judged for their sexuality. Um, but they seem more on par with Bond of having control of it. And I think there's a strong influence when it comes to women in spy-oriented uh, representations on television and film that makes its way into the Bond franchise during this era. Right. Yeah, um, I think that's true, Lisa. Um, yeah. I mean, my... Oh, sorry, James. Well, I was going to say, I think Natalia as a character is a breakout bit of this film. And mm-hmm. I think she's one of the strongest things in the film. When the whole Me Too movement popped up like a year or two ago and, and Hollywood was making perhaps knee-jerk reactions to try and readdress the balance. And and Bond got criticized, uh, especially the Craig era, rightly so, right? And in, in, in that mm-hmm. thing, I was like, go back to GoldenEye 25 oh. years ago. I mean, Bond's getting you know yelled at put in his place, corrected um, mm-hmm. by female counterparts in 1995. <laughs> so in some regards, you know, the Bond series kind with Craig era kind of walked some of that back, I think, um, I think which was a mistake. It was a mistake to do that. Yeah, I agree. But James Bond has always been a lightning rod for critiques when it comes to gender and sexuality, and in many ways, rightly so. I mean, I have issues with, you know, the Connery era and its representation of women, and I could go on and on. But I think sometimes what gets lost in the process is that there are many other action films out there that have equally problematic representations. We can critique the way that women are presented through the Bond girl trope, and yet I can look at many quote-unquote flicks and say that, you know, that there's similar representations there, and yet those are films that are marketed towards women, largely made by men, but still marketed towards women and so i think bond is just going to be a lightning rod for controversy and sometimes those criticisms are definitely there but it's not the only franchise that has issues or or problems also it's not just a lightning rod for um gender issues and yeah. um byplay between the sexes it's a lightning rod for imperialism mm-hmm. lightning rod for politics it's it, it just goes with the territory and goes back to it you know the character's origin back in the 50s also i, just, I was just going to say that christmas jones as originally written was intended to be a, a substantial character she's a nuclear physicist for crying out loud mm-hmm. um and that may be a case where the casting you know undercut it 
which was done for commercial reasons. And, yeah. and if we, uh, if we do a watch along for that, we can talk about it then. But, um, yeah, it, it's, um, there was definitely an attempt in this era to, to address that. And it definitely is uh, present in this film. Going back to Lisa's comments. Please tell me, Phil, please tell me that that's not your, your pick for, for no. this next week. No. <laughs> no. All right, so um, apart from... Um, I love that film. I'll stand by that film. It oh, was yeah. my pick a few year, a few uh, weeks ago, a few years ago, as I was going to say. Well, uh, uh, yeah, he feels like <laughs> this lockdown's going to last decades. <laughs> I, I like it too, though, Calvin. So uh, we 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 share a a common uh, film there. Well, yeah, no, I mean that's why I'm quite um, excited to get onto it. Actually, um, to sort of yeah, especially given your uh, critique of Goldeneye, I think it'd be interesting to look at the world is not enough and um, yeah, talk it, about it, what it, you'd it, like there. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I really have no idea what I like about it, uh, it's, <laughs> uh, but it, uh, it, it's the Brosnan film that I prefer. Mm. Yeah. All the, right, the, the, the we, uh, picked a week to fucking explode, didn't it? Shall we, uh, shall we talk well, about gonna, the next one? Well, now? I was just going to say, because Calvin, this is your pick. I just wanted you to kind of wrap us up as to your thoughts, why you like it, why you think it's popular, and how it's changed over the years for you. Oh, sure, God. Or, or not, um, I don't or know not if it's changed. changed me that much over the years at all. Like, it's, it's, it's been a, a favorite for me since I, since I got into Bond, I think. I still, to this day, can't quite remember if... I was aware of the films or if I was aware of the video game before, because I certainly have very vivid memories of playing the video game. And I would always pick Xenia to be my character when I was playing multiplayer with my friends. And um, yeah. I, 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 I must've been about nine or 10 years old when I watched this on like videotape, my grandparents had it. So um, it does have that childhood nostalgia kind of, um, I definitely watched it after Moonraker and Diamonds Are Forever. I'm pretty sure it was the third one that I sort of came to. So it's always um, been held in high regard. I, I think it's just, and I, and I think Ben touched upon it as well as we went throughout the thing. I think Martin Campbell is an exceptional storyteller. I think just the, information mm -hmm. that is conveyed and, and then pair that with Philip Mayhew's cinematography. You just have a beautifully presented story. I love all the characters. I think the casting is superb across the board. It just, it ticks every box for me for a, for a Bond film. Um, it's been a favorite. It will long be a favorite. I uh, absolutely adore it. So I'm glad that we could talk about it today um, on this podcast because it's very rarely that good films get voted in for us to talk about. <laughs> Oh, universally appreciated films. Is that for? A yeah, there we go. Very tactful. Yeah. Very tactful. Very yeah. tactful. Yeah. 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 So, Calvin, I think you have to take a bath on the vote this week because you won this week. That's fine. Um, yeah. Unless you've been working the the back corridors of power during the week too. Um, so, who would like to um, pitch one first? I think Lisa, you should go first. Have we done the Living Daylights yet? No. So I'm going to pick the Living Daylights. Do do do. All right. Do do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go for Goldfinger then. <gasps> I, I smell um, a stitch up here. What did he say? He just said Goldfinger. 
<sighs> yeah. This is All a right. All contentious right. um, one. I was uh, I was very keen to uh, to have a view to a kill win this time, even though I do ge- genuinely like Goldeneye. Um, so I will give a view to a kill another go. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> And I would say you're allowed to do that because it was Mark's choice last week. So, all right, Bill. So David's nominated right. Goldfinger. So this is so, going to be interesting. So the, que- so the question is: Do I want to nominate one that I want to see, or do I nominate a uh, um, something that will ensure that David wins? <laughs> all right, all right. My third choice: Spectre. <laughs> Okay, Ooh. I think, oh, to be honest, Bill, I think that was a safer call anyway. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just want to point out that this whole voting system's a stitch-up, James, because didn't we have Casino Royale 1954 the other day? Yeah, but then I thought about that, and I was like... Well, I was going to say the rules of this have kind of like, I remember we started doing this. It was like, oh, what shall we do next week? Oh, yeah, let's just do Dine of the Day, whatever. Yeah, fine. And now it's become like a real strategic, you know, we can't split the vote. We can't, you know. Well, only because I haven't won a single round. Um, (laughs) Well, I think if Goldfinger wins, if Goldfinger wins, I'm winning it for you, Bill. That's right. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So. I don't know. Um, daylights or a view to a kill. A Spectre's not going to win, so we'll see. Mm. I think we're going to have Ben. You might have to enlist Mark's help on social media. Ah, uh, well, I'll, I'll rally the forces together. Hopefully, if Spectre does win, we'll have to do it over two weeks. That's right. <laughs> I, I just, I just want to say, Bill, raw number of votes that you got for Goldfinger would have won any other week. <laughs> so it was it was just because it got a bit contested. We got double the number of votes mm. we normally do. So. Okay, I, I reckon for this week's vote, I'm going to uh, involve my mailing list. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to get a, bush, a Russian bot network next week at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> Won't be me. I'm not, I'm not making an concerted attempt on this <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed it and thanks for having me back James thanks Ben I'm glad our contract negotiations um, <laughs> resumed <laughs> yeah. yeah was Mark the George Lazenby of the group like sort of came in for one and then and he comes back <laughs> yeah he, he got some bad advice uh, about his career <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling uh, if, if Ben's if Ben's vote amazing. wins this week he'll be back. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on this note, we should call it a week. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so long. Right. Thanks everyone. Stay safe. Have a good week. See you See next you. week. <laughs> <laughs>